jacket for me, Mr. Costello? That! A gangster's life is a brutal calling. Jacket actually is bulletproof. Treats his fish better than he treats us. Fit only for men of courage. Men who bear no resemblance to Harry Valentini and Mo Dixie. Until one day... It's part of the grand design. Harry turned a simple errand. Costello Source ain't never gonna win. I'll put this $10,000 on my baby. I'm getting out of here. Into a date with destiny. But destiny stood them up. How could you be so stupid? The mob is willing to forgive them. Let me waste them, Mr. Costello. Do we really hurt them by killing them? It's a good start. If they'll just do one simple thing. Like kill each other. Friends this close. What are you doing? Sorry if I shoot. Just can't kill each other. Yet. <laughs> You're the guy they hired to kill me? I'm the guy they hired to kill you. <laughs> Danny DeVito, Joe Piscopo. They're funny guys. You can disguise yourself as what? The time life builder. Tough guys. Are you talking to me? Wise guys. I can't believe how things keep going our way. But anyway, we digress. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> it's the allure living in New York. You know, you get to see it right up. It's like a 3D show. So, um, yeah. Um, I was listening to that. Um, uh, I've, I've, I've done a big step in my, uh, I don't know what you would call it, my technology prowess where I, f- about a month ago, I finally started using Amazon, Amazon, Amazon Music because up until this point, you know, I still been using an MP3 player, and then I get the weird side looks from people younger than me that I work with, like, "Wow, you're still using an MP3 player?" And then one time on the train, like two weeks ago, somebody said to me, "Like, what is that, man?" And I was like, "Um, it's an MP3 player." He's like, "Wow, that's pretty cool. You use that? That still works?" I was like, "Yeah." So like it. I kind of dawned on me that, you know, I guess people don't do this anymore. And I don't have an Apple, so I don't use Apple Music. So I was like, you know what? The wife does it. I'll try. You know, I don't want to pay $8 a month or 10 bucks a month because I've got all the music myself, but I guess it's the convenience. So I said, okay, I'll try the three-month trial. So started amazing. You know, everything's at your fingertips. I'm realizing what everybody loves about it and stuff like that. So lo and behold, long way around is, I'm looking up our favorite album, Antonio Carlos Jobim with Sinatra. So I put it on, and evidently, I guess, since we've got it on CD, there it's like a been re-released, remastered with some extras. So I'm listening to the album, and then when the album ends, there's like different takes, you know, of stuff. And then they have that live PBS thing that you and I know and love, where it's him and Antonio Carlos Jobim doing like a medley on on stage. And I'd forgotten about that performance, so it's so funny. So when they're doing the girl from Ipanema. Um, I'm standing on the train, you know, listening to it myself. And I laugh out loud because it's like, they get to the part where, um, uh, you know, she does and see, and then Joe Beams is like, Oh, Liki, que cosa malin. He starts singing in Portuguese. And then um, in the middle of it, <laughs> Sinatra's like, yeah, it's the only way. 
<laughs> so I started laughing out loud to myself, and I had several people look at me, and I realized how I was like, "Oh, I'm laughing because Sinatra." But <laughs> nobody gets it, so I found it very funny that I was like, you know, he's just adds in his little two bits. It's the only way, baby. <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, I do Amazon Music as well because I had Prime, and you get a certain amount of free songs. Yeah, same with here. Prime, but it wasn't everything, and so then I was like buying them on yeah. the special like goblin albums on amazon prime just so that i had them and then i was like and a bunch of pizzarelli stuff that they didn't have just on the prime stuff so then i started paying for amazon music i mean they, they still don't have everything you're right i found several things i'm looking for and they don't have i mean they have the bugsy malone soundtrack but do they have the uh raise the titanic soundtrack no yeah so they don't I'm have not. a whole their their film music uh uh selection isn't the greatest no um, but they surprise me sometimes now a colloquial question when did you stop listening to uh doing it my way with the mp3s has it been years yeah you were a holdout like me i guess it's been a few years um because music wise I i did it for a long time um but when at some point when uh you know, when I started to listen to Stern and I got the, uh, again, and I, and I actually got, I started paying for Sirius and doing the Sirius app. I was, you know, mostly listening to that and com- when I commuted. Um, but I, I did the MP3 thing for a while, but I've probably been doing just like straight up Amazon music for, I don't know, the last five, six years, something like that. It's, it's super convenient, but I don't know. I, with like everything in my life, with my um mindset and my personality i'm still locked as we always say like i feel like we're uh still 2002 like we're a year out of college for me so uh i thought it was normal and then i didn't realize technology had progressed and then i was the only standalone i still had an ipod up until a couple of years ago that was still working and then i just got a regular cheap mp3 player you know that was serving my purposes but uh yeah i didn't realize that everyone had evolved not only that it's like it's like you know people who now you know, having like a horseless carriage, I'm still having like the like a like a steam engine, and people are driving around in like you know DeSotos or something or Hudsons, and I'm like, oh well, I should get on. So it's 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 amazing to just be able to. It's like a, people already know. Like, <laughs> Did you know that you could just listen to music? To anything you want? you want is at your fingertips. So I like the. Um, I just don't like having to pay for it. It's like what the heck, you know? It's like yeah. another another thing um but i digress so anyway that's the funness of my of my barren existence um welcome to saturday night movie sleepovers um i'm dion the Baya, and i'm always in a, forever joined with jay blake jay the blake this is a surprise episode yes this is a, a little surprise um a couple weeks ago we had the passing of uh, the great treat williams and, uh, you know, I was uh, reading about it, and it was really sad about his passing and how it happened in a, in a motorcycle accident um, that didn't seem to be his fault. And uh, Blake and I were talking over texts, and I said, you know, out of his whole catalog, you know what I feel like doing? Not Prince of the City, not all these other seminal movies that he's done that <laughs> he's been awarded things for. I said, you know what I remember him best for, aside from Critical Bill and things to do in Denver when you're dead? I said, I like him from Dead Heat. And I said, Blake, how would you like doing a surprise uh, month late cast on Dead Heat? And you're like, sock it to me. 
And I was like, all right. So in three weeks from now, we were recording. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't the intention, but we just yeah. couldn't find we, the we, yeah, time. We couldn't find a play date that our parents would let, allow us to get together and drive us over from you know, Albany to Connecticut and stuff like that. You know, it's always a long play date where I'm like, okay, I'm leaving now. My mom's bringing me over now. Three hours later, you know, I'm like, I got to go to the bathroom. So um, this was a surprise episode. Wasn't really planned for since the last. Um, and unfortunately, um, we've had some more tribute worthy deaths. Since, yeah. Since yeah. The then. great Alan Arkin died uh, as of this recording um, a, a couple days ago. And you know me, I'm a huge wait until dark fan. I I, I'd love Jerky to cover boys, that. the movie. Jerky Boys the movie, So I Married an Axe Murderer. Uh, Rocketeer. Uh, Rocketeer, which we've covered on here, of course. Um, and uh, and some of the stuff we've rec- we've covered on, on the podcast already will come into play with this um, week's episode. And I feel like we might have talked about doing this movie before. I mean, we both have, I have a huge affinity for this movie, and you like the movie just the same. Yeah, I have fond memories of the movie. I don't think I've ever liked it as much as you do yeah like you're you're like a ge- like a genuine fan i have like oh yeah i remember renting that movie as a kid that was fun yeah <laughs> i remember i we can get into it but i remember the lead up it coming out it being amazing well, 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 did we say what movie we're doing uh we might have we're doing this week uh the classic from 1988 uh dead heat not to be uh mixed with red heat yes. or uh raw heat or any Excuse or me, just, uh, heat. just heat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the other heats uh, directed by the great uh, Mark Goldblatt, who we referenced this movie on our inaugural episode because he had directed The Punisher, the Dolph Lund- Lundgren uh, movie from 1989, I think. 89, it is. yeah. And he's this only, was his directorial debut, right? He's only directed, as far as I know, he's only directed two movies. Oh, okay. I thought he had a, a, a couple more. I mean, maybe he did like. Tales from the Crypts or one-offs or maybe, maybe like episodic. Uh, directed, this was his first uh, directorial debut, and then he directed the following year, he directed the Punisher movie. But uh, Mark Goldblatt was primarily, still is, an editor. Uh, worked for Corman back in the day, edited Piranha. Mm-hmm. He's done a lot of sleepover classics, yeah, including, classics. including films that we've covered on the show. He did... Uh, Piranha. He did Enter the Ninja. The yeah, Howling. We, two of them. We three of them. We haven't covered on the show, but we've covered what the Terminator. Didn't you Terminator, the Terminator. Commando. Halloween Commando. Two. We did all those on the podcast. And uh, but he also did uh, f- f- Rambo Two. First, our uh, first Blood Part Two. Predator Two, <sighs> which we did on the podcast. Which did Nightbreed. I feel like we have not done any Rambos, have we? We have not done a Rambo yet. Well, I feel like it's about time. <laughs> All right, screw this movie. Let's talk <laughs> yeah, about screw it. this. We're gonna go off the off the cuff, and because I feel like at least the first three we should get to at some point. You know, um, you know, Rambo, uh, uh, First Blood, and First Blood Part Two, and and three, and you know, um, and then uh, yeah, he's done a lot of seminal editorial edit, editing wise. He's done a lot of seminal movies, and I think that's you know, really got him in with a lot of people. And then that's how he knew people and got connections and, you know, be it actors, producers, writers uh, in the industry. And then that kind of got him, got him jobs. And maybe that got landed him this um, to direct this. Um, do you feel like this is a rel- well-regarded movie in the sense of like people going to think we're pulling this out of our ass? It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, that movie. I think 
a Saturday night movie sleepover listening audience will know this movie. Yeah. I think the majority of them will have seen it. I agree. And I think at the very least they will know it. Uh, but it's younger a, generation maybe may not. Yeah. I mean, but it's a movie that I, I think it's a movie that has had a resurgence in recent years. It re- just recently had like a four K QHD release with a bunch of extras, which I don't have. So we're not going to, I'm not going to be talking about those. Extras. No, but I think a lot of them were recycled from the, when it came on DVD and I want to say 2003 or four at the time I was working in New York at my current job and I was still living in Connecticut. So for about a year and a half, I was commuting uh, two hours each way on Metro North from New York city to New Haven. And uh, it was a ripe time for me to just drink excessively on the train with nothing else to do and watch movies on my laptop. And this was one of the movies that I remember fondly on a night coming out, getting it, and then watching it on the train ride home. Because it's only, what, 86 minutes or so. You know, so I had enough time with the two-hour ride to, like, you know, watch a cartoon in a newsreel before and after. You know, so it was, uh, I had a fond memory of revisiting this movie and, like, when it came out on DVD. And then it had special features with it, too. Uh, which was great at the time because this is a movie you would think may not get any special features when it you know gets um, released on a disc of some sort. Um, do you have a bl- uh, a little off topic? Do you have a 4K TV? You seem like you're up in tech, right? Yeah, yeah. And I have four, so and then um, again, I'm I'm so antiquated. Uh, I, I hear there is a considerable difference. It's not like DVD to Blu-ray. I, some people are like it's amazing. You had you know that's my next step is once this TV dies, I'm getting it. Yeah, I don't know. I, as I get older, things like that seem less important to me. Yeah. Um, I got the TV I have actually not because it was 4K, but because they stopped making 3D TVs. Yeah, and I had a shitload of, D, of <laughs> 3D movies on Blu-ray. Yeah. And my 3D television was, was getting pretty old. Yeah. And... uh so I was afraid that, you know, if that, you know, if that died, that I would be stuck with all these. I would never be able to watch a 3D movie. So I started just because, just because I wanted to preserve my uh, 3D Blu-ray collection. I went and I found like, at like a Best Buy or something, like a model TV from like two years ago when they were, st- well, at the time. Yeah. When they were still like the last... 3d tv that was made <laughs> nice and, and it, so you need a special tv not a, not only a, a a disc player you also need a special yeah. uh excuse my I, i'm a little under the weather so um i've got my my sex phone 900 number voice going today <laughs> so uh we're gonna try to power through this uh, regardless but so okay so you need a, a special tv and then you know it, with me too it's just I mean, it can't be helped, but you it just spe- always annoys me. You do need me. a special player, too. You need a 4K yeah. player. And it always annoys me that, you know, it's an excuse to have to buy another format. You know, yeah. it's like when um, DVDs came out and there was that other, it was like Betamax versus VHS. Remember they had like um, those other DVDs that were coming out for a while that weren't DVDs that wouldn't oh, play yeah. in a player? I remember my mom bought some of those for me like at like, library sales i got you troy uh, you know with brad pitter i got you this and then H- it's like hd dvd yeah and i'm like i can't do anything with this mom what the <laughs> <hell>? <laughs> but my, my, my point is that like at the time i started getting 4k you know uhd blu-rays and stuff but 
I don't know. I'm, you know, we're now in our mid forties and it just it seems, uh, you're useless. Yeah. It's just, I, 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 I don't want to, I, I, I'm not going to rebuy everything again. Like that's I, how I feel. You know, I, I was, that was a game for the, for the youth. <laughs> and then you also know, how many I, copies of evil dead do I need really? Or right? Halloween or Halloween or whatever. So and nowadays, like, and I'm even just like getting rid of stuff. Like I'm, yeah, you've really bought, been I able bought to... like a little server and I'm ripping all my movies onto hard drives and I'm way the future and I'm putting them into a server and I watch them on Plex. And so like now, you know, I, I have the, the 4k movies that I have and occasionally I might buy something if it's special, like if it's Argento or if it's Carpenter, yeah. it's like, oh yeah, like, but for the most part, I don't buy Blu-rays anymore. Uh, and I'm getting rid of the Blu-rays I have. I, I'm ripping them into hard drives and watching them, I, watching them via the Plex. And so they're not 4K anyway. In fact, I don't even. In fact, I like, you know, I make them smaller to put them on the Plex. So I'm not even oh, watching okay. them at like full resolution. <laughs> and I know a lot of people who like a, a friend of mine who has Amazon Music or or not Amazon. I'm sorry, Apple Music. That's another thing where people are buying. They have these sales where you can buy a movie. I'm I'm saying this like people who are listening don't know anything about this. I'm like, there's something called a sale. But it's like, you know, they'll have 4K. You can buy it for $3 with all special features and stuff. So I know a lot of friends of mine who they have a big library like on Apple or something that are 4K, you know, yeah. and then you can throw it in your Until TV the Apple with a server player. goes down. And then yeah, screwed. and then you're all going to die. But even now, it's like when I watch, you know, I'll go throw a DVD in, and I have been noticing. I don't know why it, it's taken me this long, but I do notice the difference between like a – you know, I still have my like tombstone copy from whenever that first came out. You can notice a difference that it's not, it's weird. We notice a difference from like 480 to like, you know, to whatever that is, 720. But now I've, I'm really noticing a significant, significant difference when I watch my older DVDs versus like a Blu ray. Like, oh yeah, this doesn't look remastered or this doesn't look as crisp as it could. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, yeah, and I want that giant, it picture. A, it was such a giant jump from each from vhs to dvd that we were like it's never going to look better than this and yeah then, and then every year they're like it's going to look better and it's going to look <laughs> so i've heard a lot of people talking about regaling the 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 pluses of 4k and you know i've always been at it when we got the blu-rays and like how good can you make something look and i guess there are limits but also there are milestones where stuff can look amazing and i know a lot of people have that issue with the uh progressive player modes where some of the stuff looks like it was shot on a VH uh, a camcorder. And I personally, I like that because sometimes, you know, when it looks like you're looking through a window, I sometimes it gives me like, oh, an older movie I've seen a, a quadrillion times might have a new look to me or fresh, you know, that way. But I know that's standoffish for some people. But yeah, I don't know how many times can they remaster like Citizen Kane or Touch of Evil to make it look any better because at some yeah. point you're and, the emotion, you know. You know the, this is a you know go down way down at yeah way down at <laughs> nothing to do with dead heat. I mean, there's also like some movies. I, I'm, I'm I'm a proponent of like you know what some movies shouldn't look good. Yeah, you know, I like, agree. Like to me, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is never going to look better than a crappy VHS tape. <laughs> yeah, as it, as it was intended, <laughs> like the original Evil Dead. 4k yeah. like you know what sure i might have it on 4k but it, it <laughs> sure. still doesn't look as good as it did on vhs some movies just look better yeah on vhs as they were intended they're more effective so when i when i dug out my we'll, we'll bring this sucker around this tractor trailer truck so when i dug out the 
excuse me, when I dug out the Dead Heat uh, DVD to watch, um, uh, it, it, I did notice that it didn't look as sharp as it could. And then that's when I started, you know, after we took our break and I was doing some research, I saw they had this 4K release. And it does look amazing, the, the stills I've seen. And that's another negative I hear, like an example being Tom Savini's uh, amazing remake of Night of the Living Dead, where there are people who don't like when they do these remastered because sometimes they bring down the image and stuff and it looks severely different from the original intent you know and that sucks when they put all this time and money into a remake or a re-edition and then it's not up to the audience's expectations and then you're stuck for what 5 10 20 years with that edition until they bother to redo something again and then you have to have your fingers crossed that they're gonna fix whatever problem the audience had with it so it could be a crapshoot yeah it's a cautionary tale but anyway dead heat um, love Dead Heat. Not everybody. <laughs> <laughs> great movie. Great movie over here. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Yeah, it was great. Thoroughly enjoyable. Well, I, I remember, remember yeah. renting Dead Heat probably in 89. Not right when it initially came out. Yeah, I didn't go see it. And back then, like, VHS didn't come out, like, the following week. You know, sometimes yeah. it took, like, six months. Sometimes. At least, yeah. You uh, forget about it until it came out. Uh, I don't think it was at a sleepover. I think I rented it with my stepdad. And, um, you know, when you're a kid, I don't know what it's like these days, but for our generation, uh, I feel like there were good, there were like entryways into horror. You know, there were things that were horror, but they were, not scary enough that they would freak out when you were a kid. You know, we had a lot of horror television and some of it was actually pretty messed up, <laughs> but, but it was like, at least it was, cl it was clean, you know, or, yeah, you know, or we had things like the gate, which is genuinely disturbing, but was made for kids. Or I think that's one of my, one of my affections for Chucky was that like the child's play series was, was that it was, it was scary and it was genuine horror, but it, the idea was so outlandish that even as a kid, like I could be slightly less afraid to go to bed because I didn't have yeah. a Chucky doll. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I think something like dead heat was kind of a perfect movie for a young Dion or Blake, you know, nine, 10 years old. It's, uh, it's horror, but it's fun. It has Joe Piscopo. Uh, it's well, a buddy cop movie, which were you know was very big at the time, and we can get into the the the, the writing of this movie and stuff. But I remember renting it and thinking it was awesome, and yeah. thinking it was like, like really cool and funny. And um, we, we were the audience they were trying to, I guess, pitch it to. Yeah, and then I didn't see it again until. Uh, Joe Bob Briggs did it a few years ago on uh, the last drive-in, his last drive-in show, and uh, and look, it's problematic for sure. I mean, it's not, you know, I would never argue like the cinematic merits of Dead Heat with somebody who really wanted to go there, but I will say that it's fun and lived up to expectation in those regards, and. Uh, 
So, I mean, that that's that's my relationship to it. I mean, it was that, like, I had seen it as a kid, and I had always remembered it fondly, even when you and I would talk about it, even though I hadn't seen it in, like, 10 years when we got went to college and would, and would talk about movies and stuff. It was always like, oh, yeah, Dead Heat. That was that movie was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, it coming out. I remember seeing previews for it coming out. And it, I was like, I was hanging out with this kid named Chad who lived up the block who I would go over, you know, one of, you have all these friendships where like you'd hang out with somebody for a couple of years and you'd go your separate ways and you don't know what happened to the kids. So Chad was a kid I hung out with for a number of years who like for the first time I watched um, Dirty Dancing over his house uh, and, and various other movies of 87, 88. And I remember, I forget how, but we saw previews for this and we were so psyched, me, Chad, and my friend who I always bring up, Martin, so psyched for this movie coming out. It looked like they written it for us. I was like, wow, this looks so cool. And then I didn't see it in the theater, but um, it came out in quick enough time that I was like, oh, okay, it came out, saw it, and loved it. At the time, I was a big, I still am, a big Joe Piscopo fan. So I'd seen him on Saturday Night Live. I love his movie, Wise Guys. He's the Brian De Palma movie with... um, Danny DeVito and um, uh, Harvey Keitel's in that as well, and what's and um, the other guy, Lou Albano, and so and then you know Johnny Dangerously. So when this movie was coming out, I was like, wow, you know, I got to see this movie. And I remember it coming out, me loving it, and I I don't I don't remember watching the crap out of it, but I watched it enough to know it. And then you know we got to college, and I guess I would watch it every once in a while. Uh, it wasn't something I watched religiously, and then when it came out on DVD, finally in the early 2000s, I picked that up, and I have that still, and uh, I had a great affinity for it. And then at my job, meeting Joe Piscopo, he would come over, come a lot there, and uh, I brought the DVD in, and he was like, wow, this is on DVD, and I'll, you know, and then he signed it for me, and then me just bending his ear about, like, you know, I love Jim Dead Heat, <laughs> you know, and he's like, thank you. And he's like, you know, he, I remember him telling me, he's like, you know, me and Treat only did it because we wanted to meet Vincent Price and Darren McAvin. And he's like, and then he's like, Vincent Price walked around in red sneakers the entire time he was there. He was like, it's great. And it's like, wow, you know, so um, it holds a great affinity for me. And it's like, it's a movie for me, I feel like is ripe for a remake. You know, I mean, I don't want to have anybody steal our idea if that is an idea. But I think you could do that if you didn't do it like schlock, but you did it firmly tongue in cheek. You know, you made it like a horror comedy or a comedy horror um, I think this would be a perfect movie to do today and have it be fun and good. And you can maybe do some of the stuff they originally intended on doing that they weren't able to do because of the MPAA uh, guidelines at the time, which at this point, it's like a, an aside conversation. Like, what does what the rating system do anymore when you see what's in <laughs> movies on TV? It's like, do they even have a job because you're seeing like, you know, quadruple X now and stuff like that. So um, some of the stuff like in this movie, you see that them, you know, trying to like get them to cut out stuff. It's like, well, that wasn't really that bad compared to comparatively to what was out there. So, um, yeah, I had a really fun, and this might've been also the first movie I probably saw Treat Williams in. I didn't see Prince of the city back then, you know, until much later and stuff like that. And then, you know, uh, by the time I saw him in things to do in Denver, when you're dead, I knew him from dead heat and stuff like that. And, um, I don't know if I knew who Darren McGavin was at the time. I certainly knew who Vincent Price was at the time. And, uh, you know, key Luke's in here too. So, um, and of course, um, I knew, um, what's his name, uh, Professor uh, uh, Toro Takana, uh, who's also in um, 
Black Rain as well as he's in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. He's Herman's, you know, uh, doorman when he opens like, where's Herman? He's taking a bath. Oh, Randy, where are they hosing him down? Like, you know, I remember him from that. So, uh, and he was this a, seemed like he was a WWF wrestler too, wasn't he? I think so. Then he was yeah. like tag team partners with Mr. Fuji. Oh, nice. Yeah, of course. You know, and then when I was little, I always got him confused with uh, Odd Job. I thought he was Odd Job, and it's like, no, you know. Then when you say, like, oh, okay, but I think he could have played an awesome Odd Job <laughs> had they given it to him. Uh, but yeah, this this is always something I had a really. I thought it was a great idea, great concept. You know, I was a big fan of like uh, cop movie, buddy cop movies at the time. So mixing those two genres, I think, was perfect in the era that it was. You know, when we were getting to the point in the '80s where you had like, you know. Um, send-ups like Sledgehammer, the TV series that was like a spoof on Dirty Harry or other things of that era, you know, uh, um, you know, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Like when you're lampooning that genre, I thought this was perfect when it came out to be uh, not necessarily like making fun so much as like a Sledgehammer would, but it was fun to have it stepping, you know, using the tropes you know from those buddy cop movies and then adding this horror, you know, and it's a tight movie. Like we said, it's what, a you know, under 90 minutes. So it's like that was one of the... F- Things I did notice about watching it when we watched it tonight, it's like, it's a fast-paced movie. It's flying by, you know? It's like stuff's getting done, you know? It's like bang, 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 you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an odd movie. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think that's a negative. Uh, it's just, it's it's a movie that, like, I feel like doesn't, it's unique. It's definitely unique. And its tone is very kind of like bizarre. I think it's this weird thing where <clears throat> like mainstream Hollywood tries to do like a horror comedy and you get this kind of thing where it's like 50% comedy and it's 50% horror and it doesn't ever they kind of cancel each other out a little bit and it just be, yeah. it, it creates this, this very odd like uh feeling about it like this like the the tone of it is very is just like weird sometimes feel, it doesn't always work because of that like you're saying yeah. it cancels each other out i i mean i felt like <clears throat> i feel like uh, um, in my opinion like a horror like a genuine horror comedy needs the picket moments like i felt I feel like Bubba Hotep was this way in a lot of ways too. Like it didn't know it was trying to be funny and it was trying to be a horror movie and it tried to coexist as opposed to being a horror movie when it needs to be a horror movie and being a comedy when it needs to be a comedy. I think a movie that does this brilliantly is Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. When it needs to be a horror movie, it's a full on horror movie. When yeah. it needs to be a comedy, it's a full on comedy. Very rarely, and sometimes they'll there'll be comedic moments during the horror, but for the most part, it picks its moments, and so it ends up they don't have to coexist because they they <clears throat> they exist in tandem. <laughs> you know, like when it needs to be this, it needs to, it does it. When it needs to be that, it doesn't ever. It does. It rarely tries to be both at the same time. This movie, I would say, is a buddy cop parody like you were saying uh to with in like a supernatural horror world without ever actually being a horror movie yeah it it almost doesn't take itself serious so much it almost seems like 
they kind of reside in the world of like lax action hero. Like they're kind of like <laughs> in this, you know, like I think you're right. Like Shaun of the Dead is emblematic of being like the bar you want to aspire to. They did it so well that you want a movie that at the moment it's supposed to scare you does scare you. And then you're able to have that relief. And, you know, we've talked about this before and we took a, a course, uh, a required course in, in, in college where we had to do a horror, a horror comedy class and understand how close they are in relation to uh, being able to make an audience scared and then at the same time relax an audience with a laugh or something to let the tension release and get them comfortable so that you can scare them again. And I think some movies like, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing, when you have a, a, a funny moment, people will laugh because the tension is so racked up. And um, it is very hard to, ha to, to walk that line without one canceling the other out and it not working or just the jokes or the scares don't fall in the right position like a lot of uh peter jackson's early work right like dead alive or meet the feebles uh, i haven't seen a, a lot of those in years but i feel like he was striving for this you know with certain things where you'll have you know horrific moments of horror but then at the other time you'll have comedy or just yeah. lampooning or, or or over the top almost like um screwball kind of comedy i think that like i think dead heat you know I think it airs maybe not intentionally, maybe intentionally. It airs more on the side of like Teen Wolf, which is like yeah. you take this horror uh convention of a werewolf and you put him in high school and it's it's like not ever actually scary, you know. <laughs> I think Dead Heat's like let's take <clears throat> like the zombie uh subgenre and let's put it in this like kind of buddy cop comedy. And it's just like it exists in this world where zombies exist, but it never there's suspense, but it never actually gets scary, which is fine. I mean, it I feel like it kind of commits to that, which is you know, which is good. You know, that's like a definite decision, but at the same time, it the it creates like this weird kind of balance. And it, to be honest, like, I, I and I don't want to sound like being negative. I, I mean, I think it can be viewed as negative, but it's also one of the things I kind of love about the movie. You know, like the like the zany tone is why I yeah. like it now as an adult. Anyway, I don't know if I would have put it in those words as a kid, or like I, I would have known that that's what I like about it. You know, as I get older, and we start revisiting things from our childhood. Um, you know, like, I think I texted you after I watched double dragon and I was like, this movie is like, I never saw, I never saw it as a I, I still haven't ever seen it. Um, full disclosure, <laughs> but I watched it and it's this like beautiful time capsule of an era where Hollywood didn't know how to make a comic, like a video game movie. And you know, it's just like it's primary colors, like it's the era of like Super Mario Brothers, right? With Bob Hoskins. Yeah, and, yeah, and, which um, is another perfect example. John Luisiamo. <laughs> John Luisiamo. <laughs> John Leguizamo. John Luisiamo. That's another guy. <laughs> Someone else. Yeah. That's his cousin. His stunt uh, it's just it's this like 
the movies that stand out to me and that I end up like watching as an adult from when we were kids, the ones that I tend to love the most as a rewatch are the ones that are just really weird. Unique like, and like, a- like just really like the tones are weird. They're screwed up. Like not, not like they're disturbing screwed up, but just like they're, there's like they're things aren't lining up the way a movie we the, the way a movie should, <laughs> you yeah. know, it creates this unique thing. And, I feel like the late 80s and early 90s had a very specific feel. And you could obviously point to, I mean, every decade, every era does. But there's a very, there's a strangeness to the tone of certain kinds of movies of the late 80s and early 90s that are so specific to that like seven to eight year period that you know, unless you were like nine, 10, 11, 12 at that time, you know, it just, <laughs> I don't even know what I'm trying to say. It's just, they're so weird. The tone is so weird. It's like a monster squad. But I feel like this is a strength for this movie because it may be not fully committing to to the, the horrificness that it could have had had it been somebody else. Like if you had the horror being um, reanimator or like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then having the extreme other side be like Dirty Harry, it might have been a little frightening for a child. Yeah, yeah. I but mean, I the, feel like us, it was perfect. Yeah, like that's they, what they I'm saying. It it's like I think I think where I'm what I'm trying to say is that like unless you were that that age at that time, these kinds of movies, Double Dragon, Mario Brothers, Dead Heat, uh, there's a you know like there's just a ton of movies. Like you're not. They're, you're not going to get it in a certain yeah. way. Like, it's not going to hit you on a level because you didn't, like, grow up in a time when that tone was normal. <laughs> like a Monster Squad. Well, that's, that's well, some of the squad, stuff. I mean, Monster Squad is, is, to me, like, the Monster Squad is, like, not really. I mean, Monster Squad is, yes, it's it's dated in that, you know, the kid's called Fat Kid and they use, you know, they there's there's like, you know, gay slurs in it and you know, like it's it's dated in that way, but its tone is way more straightforward I think than something like this. Like that had a very definite it's like little rascals meet the universal monsters uh in the 80s. What a great concept. Right? <laughs> but a movie like this it's just like I mean, I think it kind of almost in some ways starts with like uh, Pee Wee Herman, you know, like yeah, uh, 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 Pee Wee's Big Adventure is a very strange tone. Like sure. the movie has a very strange tone and the show had a very strange tone and um, video like adults at the time not knowing how to like convert a video game to a movie creates some very like yeah, it's just bright colors you know we'll just uh <laughs> just, the kids all love that yeah or you know a perfect example is like uh garbage pail kids the movie is another one that's just it's totally bizarre have we not covered that on this <laughs> podcast yet that's something I've never seen, full disclosure again, as well as I used to be an avid collector as everyone of our age of those, you know, of I had thousands of hundreds of Garbage Pail Kids uh, cards. And I don't understand, I don't even know if people younger than us understand what they were in the um, the seismic boom they created in the eight, mid to late 80s 
as like a really disturbing, if you think about it, joke or or backlash to to, to Cabbage Patch Kids. I mean, yeah. you look at some of those cards nowadays, and it's just like some of the jokes are very crude. <laughs> and you're like, wow, this, these were children's, uh, marketed to children. But anyway, but that movie bombed. And I never saw it because I think it because it bombed so hard. Maybe it, it didn't get in the theaters. And then when it came on, I don't think I even found it on video because if had I had found it, of course, I would have watched it. Um, yeah. But that's another weird one, like oh, like Howard the Duck. You know, like these movies, they try to... I mean, Howard the Duck is not like Garbage Pail Kids because you had a studio backing it. I would say it was probably like a moderate budget film where they were thinking it was going to be a huge success. And them just... You know, I don't know, throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks, and then um, Howard the Duck kind of bombed in a sense. But yeah, it's like them not knowing where to go or how to pitch or market these yeah. things to what audience. And not to say that like Dead Heat goes into like the bizarre territory that things like Garbage Pail Kids or the Mario Brothers movie go into, but there is this like it's a movie of its time. And that very like strange comedic tone with, you know, very impressive, but outlandish, uh, you know, like uh, visual makeup effects and stuff is so of, is so of that time period that I'm not sure that if anybody doesn't have nostalgia for either this movie or that kind of feel of movies in the eighties will connect with this movie. I just don't know. I don't know if they can. Yeah. I'm not, cause I'm not sure if an audience that didn't grow up with it can suspend not their disbelief, but like their expectations. Maybe yeah, their expectations are like the level in which they are willing to, uh, forgive things in a way to forgive like what doesn't work about the movie and to just like be like, be like, okay, it doesn't work, but all this other stuff is weird enough for me to enjoy the movie. I mean, even like the bits were like every line out of Piscopo's mouth is a punchline. Yeah. Now that today seems like kind of like you almost roll your eyes at it. But like back then that was like par for the course. Yeah. Like all those those moments hit for me as a kid in the eighties. Like I was laughing at all those, not that I'm not laughing now, but it's like, uh, I think some people may look at that as a detriment now and be like, ah, you know, or it's like, if you didn't live back then, you didn't know the era or what we were exposed to. You, you may not understand that that was par for the course. <laughs> yeah. You well, know. you know, we should, I'm sure there might be somebody who's listening to this and be like, listen to these assholes. Uh, you know, we're, spe- we're speculating, yeah. you know, that the, the, these kinds of things may not work for, say, a younger audience. Maybe they do. I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting movie in that it's written by Terry Black, who is the yep. older brother of Shane Black. And apparently uh, Terry Black was not a screenwriter. He, I don't know what his business was, but he was in another field. Yeah, no business of work. But uh, he ends up quitting his job to write Dead Heat. Wow, Um, that's commitment right there. And and of course, his brother is has written some of the best uh, buddy cop movies of uh, the era with Lethal Weapon, and then he wrote uh, Last Boy Scout. 
Um, so I don't know. I would love to talk to Terry and figure out like what the impetus of this was. Like, was he? That's in the same time. It's like Terry's writing Dead Heat, and like, and he's calling his brother. Hey, what are you writing? He's like, I'm writing this movie called Lethal Weapon. <laughs> you know, it's like these two different. They're kind of in the same zeitgeist, but in the in a weird extreme way. You know, so, yeah. and uh, you know, he didn't go on to a, a hugely successful writing career, but he he wrote uh, like five episodes of Tales from the Crypt, which are, love which are, is awesome. Uh, I think he's written some stuff for video games now, and he wrote some other television show, but it's the television episodes for other shows in the in the nineties and stuff. Was he primarily a writer at that point, or was he like Goldblatt, where his real not real job, but his main job was editing, and then he would sometimes direct, or did he have some other, um, you know? I don't know. I don't know in if cinema if he did anything else in terms of like other jobs in the business. Like I think yeah. he came. I mean, I think when he started writing dead heat as far as i know he didn't work in the industry he was working he had like some other job um and uh so i don't know he's the older brother maybe not you know, maybe the, maybe he was feeling a little inf- inferiority i mean although like lethal weapon was just the year before right that's like 87 yeah and um i forget which movie it was but um shane had made a kind of like seismic ripple in the industry because he was the first he was like the hot kid who sold like a script for like five million dollars which was like at the time and i don't i don't remember which script it was maybe it was lethal weapon or or maybe last boy scout um but he sold something and it made you know got in all the trades this is the young up-and-comer and stuff because it was such a big deal that he had made you know sold something for so much money so he was Shane was kind of a hit. Didn't he do a, re, a draft of Predator Two while they were on the set? He was touching it up too, you know, because that's why he's in Predator the movie. Predator also, not Predator yeah. Two, yeah, as well. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, he they, he does joke that they hired him to be in the movie just so that they he would be stuck in the jungle and they could make him do rewrites on set. Mm. Um, but he yeah, I do think that he Sergeant had, Rock movie, which didn't go anywhere. I feel like he had co-written Monster Squad. Yeah, I also, feel like with Decker. Yeah, with uh, Fred Decker. Uh, but, uh, you know, to, to what Dion was saying about the one-liners, allegedly in the script, I guess because they knew they had Joe Piscopo, they had, they were casting Joe Piscopo in the script. It would, there would just be lines of dialogue where it would say LTK, which for some reason means line to come, not LTC, but you know, film's weird that way. M M O S means without sound. Yeah, without sound. <laughs> um, and so I guess they were just relying on the fact that like Joe Piscopo would just come up with lines, like funny lines. These zingers. Um, I don't know if they always work. Uh, you know, I think part of why those kinds of things work in a movie is because they're coming from organically from the character. And I think a lot of some of some of these read like they're coming organically from Joe Piscopo, <laughs> not necessarily the character he's playing in the movie. Bigelow, but as Dan points out, it's kind of uh, it's of its time, and it's weird yeah. to think that I don't know for any generation that may be younger than us, maybe generations that are older than us, um, would recognize like treat Williams as something. But for us, 
like you kind of point out, like Joe Piscopo was the big star of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like we didn't really know who Treat Williams was yet uh, when we saw this movie. I mean, clearly um, he was the more accomplished actor. Um, but uh, to us, it was like this was a Joe Piscopo movie, which is weird yeah. to think of like these days because it seems like – Joe's kind of fame, at least in mainstream, kind of faded not too long after this movie. Like, yeah, he went into the 90s, did sidekicks and other classic and stuff like that. And then, you know, it just kind of waned. And, you know, he still does stuff now, but not really acting so much. But at the time, he was huge. I mean, he, you might be able to credit him and Eddie Murphy with kind of reviving the the funk Saturday Night Live was in in the early 80s when they, I think, Lorne Michaels left for a year or two and then they had a cast who, you know, was kind of god-awful and a lot of weird people. That was the era where, like, Robert Downey Jr. or, like, um, uh, what's her face? I forget her name, who's in all those movies. Um, or the girl from Seinfeld were all yeah. in the, well, I, you know, was that, was that, was, was that the Joan same? Joan Cusack. Was that the same period as Piscopo and well, Eddie Murphy? Or was that after? Because there was like that weird, there's the, like that weird year where it's Robert Downey Jr. and Anthony Michael Hall and Randy yeah. Quaid and Joe like Cusack. And, um, and Joe, it's like they, they were the replacements, I think, when Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo left for fame and fortune when yeah. they went to go make movies because they were such hits because... I feel like Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo came in to replace the original cast of like, you know, the Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi and all them. And then they came in and kind of kept it going and were a huge hit. And their pair, pairing, especially doing like the Frank Sinatra or the Eddie uh, or the Stevie Wonder stuff was a real hit. Buckwheat and stuff like that. And uh, a lot of funny stuff. And then they both went on to have film careers. Um you know, of course, Eddie Murphy's has kept going. His star has risen, and Joe had a bunch of stuff in the '80s that were that were um, quintessential at the time. But I don't know if how fine. Like people remember Johnny Dangerously as a cult classic, but I don't know how much how many people are going to have such an affinity as I do, say for Wise Guys or you know a movie like this. You know, so there and I forget what else his catalog is, but you know, at the time, you're right. People knew. Maybe our parents or people older than us knew Treat Williams from like, you know, Prince of the City was this huge seismic event at the time that was a big TV movie that was over the course of a couple nights and maybe the late, it's like 79 or 1980. I remember that always being like a two taper when I'd see it at the video store. Um, he was so in hair. Was, he was in hair. Yeah, he'd made his mark. But, you know, when we're getting to this time, uh, was he in the the principles or the substitute? Those movies. He, he was in the sequels for the substitute movies. It was, yeah. Tom, it was Tom Berenger, maybe is the Tom Berenger was the original substitute, and then Treat was in the Treat is a Treat is a is a is a is like the stereotype of like New York actors, which is not a negative at all. I mean, he was. I don't think he went to like Juilliard or anything, but I think he went to school in Pennsylvania, but he came to New York and he kind of kicked around and he was a theater guy. He, uh, born and raised in Connecticut. And and I think he was born in Stanford and then he has, um, his family has ties to historic ties to Milford, Connecticut. And then, yeah, he, uh, graduated, but you said Pennsylvania and got into acting in, in New York city and stuff. Yeah. And he was, he was like an understudy in the original run of Greece. And then once like John Travolta and, uh, Jeff Conway kind of left, they, he felt, he, he 
then was like, I don't know if he was Danny Zuko or Kaniki, but he was one of the leads in Greece for like three years after the some of the original cast left, but he was an understudy for them. And um, so he was like, a, he, was, he was a musical theater guy and, and, a, and a theater actor. Uh, and then as he transitioned into film in the late seventies and the eighties, I mean, the guy worked with legends in the, in the, in the industry. He was, I mean, they weren't necessarily like the, those, those filmmakers greatest movies or most celebrated movies, but he, cause he was like in 1941, but he worked with Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Uh, he forgot he's in 41. <laughs> he's in once upon a time in America. So he worked with Sergio Leone. Yeah. Um, he's in, uh, empire strikes back for a bit, which I don't know if his scenes got deleted, got cut or whatever, but he's there on set. I see him like in the Hoth scenes, like there's pictures of him in like, uh, you know, it was like at the time when they were all partying and doing like a lot of blow Harrison Ford and, and, um, uh, what's her face, uh, to, uh Carrie, Carrie Fisher. Fisher and stuff. So I don't know. You know, if he had a relationship with Carrie Fisher or whatever, but you see there's a lot of, if you Google, there's a lot of pictures of him on set. I guess where they were in Pinewood Studios or Elk Streak in England shooting Empire Strikes Back. So I guess he was in England. They're like, yeah, come on and get a role. And, you know, I don't know if he has a bit part or whatever, or they get just his stuff got on the cutting room floor, but he was in that. He's in uh, 1986's The Men's Club, which is directed by Peter Medic. And, uh, you know, he stars with Harvey Keitel in that. And, uh you know, and Prince of the City was kind of like Dion was saying was a big deal. It was an early '80s kind of like uh, neo noir crime drama that was directed by Sidney Lumet. Who's yeah, you know, it was a true story where um, kind of like people know Serpico, the Al Pacino movie. It was about a true story of a cop in the '70s, New York uh, a police um, detective who uncovered a lot of corruption and then he was used um, to kind of um, root out the rotten cops and it became a very uh, controversial thing like Serpico did for people on the force because a lot of people feel like he ratted out his character ratted people out so the the real person he played you know a lot of people still find very controversial so Sidney Lament taking it in whatever 1980 or late 70s and doing it it was a very big movie at the time because of that era of you know the gritty New York cop movies we've talked about versus the corruption coming out like a Serpico so it was huge when it landed but in but I say he's like the quintessential actor is that he liked to work yeah and so he was who doesn't you know like we, we say about we've said it we've said it many times on the show an actor's gotta act so he, yeah. he was not above doing like straight to video sequels of the substitute movies or doing like some zany you know, buddy cop horror movie like Dead Heat or, you know, in his later years, he he was in Hallmark movies and Hallmark TV shows and stuff and which everybody knows are, is, you know, near and dear to my heart. But uh, he continued to work in theater and uh, he was not above taking parts in maybe what never, in projects that could never be great, but yeah. he took those jobs because he was an actor and that's what he does. And he, and he gave everything he could for those parts. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he was always kind of, I always liked him. I mean, like you, I, I think maybe this is the first thing I remember seeing him in, but after that, it was always like, well, yeah, it's the guy from Dead Heat. <laughs> yeah. It's true Williams. Look at him. 
You know, and I love his, uh, I mentioned before, I love him in Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead as Critical Bill. That's a kind of like a cult classic in its own right. One of those movies that came out in the 90s era of the Quentin Tarantino kind of style movies of like Killing Zoe or those quirky kind of weird dark crime comedy movies or dark comedy that Quentin Tarantino was penning at the time. Yeah. And uh, so he had a lot of good entries and he worked with a lot of people. You know, he worked all over the 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 gamut of Hollywood with all kinds of directors, actors and stuff. So he was well known, well liked, did a lot of TV as well. Um, I think recently he was doing maybe Blue Bloods or something like that, you know, so he was still working, doing stuff. He lived up in Vermont, um, you know, a New Englander. Uh, he used to, he was kind of like Harrison Ford. He knew how to fly. So he would, he early on, even before acting, I think he got his pilot's license. So he was flying and stuff. And, uh, you know, he was one of those kind of hands-on guys, rode a motorcycle around and did a lot of stuff like that. So, um, you know, he's an actor's actor. Yeah. I mean, he's in things from like Deep Rising. Yeah, yeah. That, that, remember you loving that when that came out, Deep Rising, Mulholland Falls. Remember that movie? That's a great movie. Yeah, he's in Mulholland Falls. That's a huge cast in that movie. That had yeah, that's book. a movie that uh, came and went. Yeah, came and went. I think it was a movie that you know struck a chord with uh, our generation because of the cast. I mean, you had yeah. uh, some Quentin Tarantino people, and you had Jennifer Nolte. Connelly. Uh, Michael Madsen, uh, John Malkovich, Chris Sean Penn. Penn uh, yeah, no, not Sean Penn. Chris Penn. Uh, oh, I forget. Uh, Chaz Palminteri. <laughs> yeah, it was well. like I remember that movie uh, came out. You see that box of the videos. You're yeah, like, oh, wow. look at this movie. Yeah, I remember really liking it too when it came out and it being kind of messed up, like yeah. the plot of the movie and stuff. But it's something I certainly have to revisit. So treat was always there, and so. This seems like a movie that would have been perfect. <laughs> Dead Heat is something it's like, and you know, when you listen to the director's commentary for the movie, they talk about that, you know, he took it a hundred percent seriously. You know, he's an actor's actor. He never kind of looked down at the at the project or the story. So he's going in this giving it his all, you know, really trying to act his heart out. And, you know, at the beginning of the movie, you know, he makes a joke when they're first in his um I think they're driving like an imp- an impala. Uh, that nice, um, you know, uh, under uh, the uh, uh, top-down car convertible. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and he says to Joe Piscopo, oh, I thought we were, you know, we were in plain clothes today, not undercover. So that's why Joe Piscopo looks like all 80s cool. And he has the under, he looks like, you know, like Dirty Harry. He looks like Harry Callahan. And he's even got the 44 Magna Model 29, which is right out of the Dirty Harry movie at the beginning. He's running around with that. He's running. He runs around with the gun in his hand like Clint Eastwood runs with the gun. So it's he's he's it's he's almost kind of echoing the sledgehammer Eastwood persona at the time uh, up until the big plot point that happens in the movie. Um, so you know he's giving it his all at the time, and uh, uh, this is a movie that it's like it's like it, I guess it was a like a low budget. They only shot thirty five days and stuff like that. You know, really really trying to get what they could out of it. Uh, it's just it's funny too in certain respects like at the beginning of the movie when you have the jewelry heist where like you know, like how many police officers are getting killed and shot <laughs> well, and <laughs> taken down and then like afterward they're just cracking jokes like you know then then like even in the background you see like the, the uniformed officers who didn't get shot they're just like looking at the bullet holes like a gas like wow look what happened and then you know, you think nowadays uh, people will be like, you know, don't you have to age your fallen partners that are down? Like, is like, like a dozen or two dozen people were killed at the beginning of that movie. <laughs> yeah, well, they didn't. The, the time frame of the movie is really short. So, I mean, the yeah, funerals yeah, and true. stuff. 
happened after the movie. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. in terms of like, we should probably give a plot synopsis too for people who have not seen. Why don't you th- give people your all of a uh, little what's what what do you what's going on in this movie? Well, I mean, I will say, I mean, um, it's basically uh, Terry Black, who who wrote it, has has said that um, the 1949's DOA, uh, which was directed by Rudolph Mattei and uh, Edmund O'Brien, starring Edmund O'Brien, was a big influence, which is uh, the the plot of that movie is the the lead character, Frank Bigelow. Yep. Which is what? Piscopo's character. Yeah, his last name is Bigelow in it. Um He's poisoned. He's poisoned in the beginning of the movie. Like so radium or something like so that. So he, he spends the remainder of the movie, which is the la- his last few days alive, trying to figure out who 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 murdered him. Yeah, there's no way. The, the plot kind of is you're poisoned and you're going to die. There's no escaping. You know, I forget if it's, it's like radium or it's something like that. Um, and, you know, you only have 48 or 72 hours to live. And there's no way to stop it or get out of it. So you have to just kind of like um, write yourself with your ultimate demise. And then the Edmund O'Brien character, the lead, ends up spending the rest of his time trying to find out who poisoned him and why. And then there's a clock of, hey, I'm already dead. And I think they take that, they, they may take that line from, Dead Heat may take that from DOA where he's like, I'm already dead, you know. So it's it's a great concept. I think they remade it too with Dennis Quaid, I feel like, in the 80s. They remade DOA. Um and I, which is which I, I think I might have seen bits of, but it's a great plot device, you know, of that time clock. You're going to die anyway. Who cares? You got to go. And it was kind of the impetus for this. So how this tra- how this translates to dead heat? <laughs> yeah, is uh... take it one step further. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Treat Williams and uh, plays Roger Mortis. And uh, Joe Piscopo plays his partner. They're they're detectives. Uh, Doug Bigelow. He plays Doug Bigelow. And uh, there there is a a spree of uh, of jewelry heists that are happening where the burglars, the 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 people doing these heists, can't be killed. They can't. They keep getting shot, but they well they won't die. They're doing them like in broad daylight, no regard for any kind of like sneaking in. They're just running and I think that's what they call them. They call them like dash and run. I forget what they word they use, but they're going in middle of the day, making the most mess they can getting away. And then when they're confronted by the police, like you're saying, for some reason, I mean, do we know prior to this, they can't die or is this when they realize when they, they head them off? This is when they realize. I feel, I feel like we were, I feel like this is when they realize that the opening scene of this movie is when they realize that these guys can't die. The, um, that's because of the response time. They realize these guys are doing it. They find out. They get there in time to get them coming out of the bank circa heat. Yeah. I was going to say, like, this, the first 15 minutes of Dead Heat, like, uses every, like, buddy cop, like, convention. <laughs> you know, it opens with, like, a heist and, like, a huge, like, all, like every officer in the city shows up and the cars are, you know, they're hiding behind the cars. There's a giant shootout, uh, opens like that. Just like something like Cobra, which isn't a buddy cop movie, but like (laughs) a cop movie. You, you get like, uh, the chief angry, you know, yeah. Yelling older guy yelling at them. We have a, a morgue scene, like every thing. It's like, you know, check it off the list of like what needs to go in like a kind of a parody of a buddy cop movie. Now we discover 
after they finally do kill these guys by like you know hitting them with cars, blowing them up, all that stuff, that these two guys have been dead before. And this is where it gets unique. This is where I remember it grabbed me. You know, it's like, oh, that's a unique idea where they, yeah, they go to get a postmortem, and the the ME there is like, not only have these guys been dead before, I I perform the postmortems on them, yeah, and here are the, the Polaroids. They have been autopsied. Yeah. They notice that there's an incision on the chest, and like, oh, he had an operation. Like, no, he had an autopsy. Um, And then, uh, you know, Darren McGavin is like... <laughs> The, I guess the head M. Yeah, he's right? like the Dr. Bodden. He's like the head of the department. He comes in, oh, this is just he's, crazy. He's the Quincy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, is that Lindsay, is that Lindsay Frost that plays the? Yeah, she's the. the she's the, like the, uh, the Sam the from Quincy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's like the assistant. Because uh, I think it's funny that like Darren McGavin was like, oh, well, like, you know, you screwed up. <laughs> They clearly weren't dead, and they got up and they walked out. I was like, no, like after an autopsy, like I don't think anybody's coming. If they were alive, you know, after you've taken out all of their organs and like weighed them and stuff, <laughs> like I'm not sure. Even if the person, like, oh, well. I'm not sure. If, even if the person was alive when the autopsy started, I don't think they're alive after the autopsy's done. Um, so it becomes a detective story. And how fitting, because our two lead characters are detectives. And they're trying to figure out, like, who these guys were, how could they get up, what's going on. And they trace this drug that was in the systems of these jewelry killer, or these jewelry robbers to uh, to this company. Dante Pharmaceuticals. Dante Pharmaceuticals. A little nod to Joe Dante, who uh, and, was also and, a fellow Corman guy and directed Piranha, which Mark Goldblatt uh, edited. And also um, to the Inferno, Dante's Inferno as well. And uh, long story short, they find some stuff at this place. Treat Williams is killed, <laughs> but they discover this machine and uh, he's resurrected. And so, but we discover that uh, even though he's resurrected and he's alive, he's going to be decomposing and that he will eventually decompose until he turns into a sludge. And he's only got like, what, 10, 12 hours. So think. that's where the DOA uh, aspect of the story comes in, which is that he, he is already dead. And even though he's been resurrected, he only has like 10, 11, 12 hours to solve his own solve his own murder solve this case figure out what's going on who why how are these people being resurrected i guess they discover that with the machine but why they're being resurrected and uh why they're robbing banks and all that stuff but uh, mostly he's looking for the who because he wants to find out who did this to, to him because and uh you know a lot of wacky antics some crazy uh makeup effects by the great Steve Johnson who uh had worked on uh everything from Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4 and Leviathan to Lord of the Rings uh, not Lord of the Rings Lord of Illusion which far better movie in my personal opinion uh Freaked Species Blade 2 uh some really out there uh latex makeup effects and some uh pretty wonderful uh, effect set pieces and uh i mean in a gist that's kind of the movie yeah and uh we get Good night, to, everybody he get get treat williams uh slowly decaying as he and joe piscopo try to figure out this 
crazy crimes against nature <laughs> now i think one of the positives of this movie positives is that this um the makeup effects are so good i mean they're all done practically uh either on set by uh practical makeup latex effects or they do like stop motion or you know everything is basically done on set you know and i think the zombie makeup jobs look phenomenal and um, me being a big zombie fan at the time growing up, you know, I thought these were stellar, um, you know, very on point, you know, to what you'd see again in the Tom Savini remake of Night of the Living Dead a couple years later. Like, I think these look great. So for me as a kid, it was always a strength that they didn't look like, you know, the zombies circa like the original Dawn of the Dead where they're like, you know, blue or green with the with the the blood that looks you know, the 3M blood that looks too red, like you've seen a lot of 70s movies and stuff like that. So you had a nice backbone of um, uh, the special effects stuff, which I always thought worked really good and, you know, kind of held this movie up in a sense. Yeah, and of course, uh, you know, the, the tour de force of the effects in this movie is a very zany set piece inside a Chinese deli. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which is doesn't necessarily the only reason for this scene is to to show off the special effects of the movie. It doesn't really advance the plot at no, all. No, you could have cut this out, and it could have, been, yeah. <laughs> it could have easily been cut out. Nothing. But it becomes the center point. A lot of people who may not necessarily remember this movie, if you don't remember the opening, the bank robbery, the jewelry heist with the oh, or they're gonna remember this this crazy Chinese deli. Key with Key Luke's place scene, so they trace the fact that uh, th that there was a there was a large uh, shipment of this drug. Yeah. Now the the drug is like this weird MacGuffin because it's kind it doesn't of, really have anything to do with the plot. It doesn't really it, have anything to do with. It the just plot. keeps the it keeps the bodies preserved yeah. until they can resurrect them. In it, the resurrection yeah, it machine. doesn't even have to do with like the resurrection process. That's it. So it's not like. Um, reanimator where remember yeah the he's injecting himself yeah it's just it's just they're keeping him in this bath of whatever this drug is yeah it's like this this weird plot device that just i guess to, for for the cops to have a for the detectives our leads to have a kind of a detect to go yeah detect. to have like a, a lead to yeah to to chase but yeah, there's a throwaway throwaway line that they're using that they're injecting the bodies with it to preserve them so that would you know until they're able to be resurrected uh so they some for some reason which again never gets explained there's a shipment to chinatown of there's a large like a large shipment of this drug gets sent to this restaurant or deli or butcher or whatever in chinatown so they go down there to, to the address that they discover it's been and uh they walk in and and uh you know the we meet Professor um, Toro Takana there chopping some meat. And little do we know that Key Luke, who's also by night when he's selling magua, is out of the basement. <laughs> During the day, he's owning this, this butcher shop. And then it's weird, it's weird because the butcher shop has not necessarily a resurrection machine, but they have a resurrection device that when yeah. you turn it well, on, will there's resurrect There's a lot <laughs> weird about this. One... <laughs> No way in hell is we're jumping all around here. But no way in hell is this deli and butcher or whatever passing any health codes. 
No, not at all. <laughs> not even in the 80s or the 70s. By any means. Like, how this place is still a business, I don't, yeah. I don't quite understand. But yeah, like the like the diversion of all diversions, and it seems like Key Luke constructs this resurrection device in this awesome like chandelier in the chandelier of this place, strictly for diversionary purposes. (laughs) Yeah, there's no practical (laughs) use to. I mean, I guess it's a good party trick if you're having people over for cocktails. Hey, look what I can do. Let me turn the light on and then bang. But you know, he he when to get away after he's being questioned by uh, Tree Williams and Joe Piscopo, he presses like that standard like '80s red plastic button that shows up later in other purposes for this <laughs> in the context of this movie. Same button. They got a good deal on special effects. So set yep. design people got a good deal on that button. And he presses it, and the chandelier like uh, fires up, and uh, lightning bolt, lightning blue bolt. lightning bolts, a la Terminator, Big Trouble in Little China, and Terminator. And, yeah, same guy actually. We learned who did all that, and then he actually recycled some of the lightning bolt effects he did for Terminator uh, for when Schwarzenegger is, you know, and and Kyle Reese are coming at the beginning. He recycled some of those actual effects. And they were reused in this movie. And, you know, I mean, I think they look great for what they're doing. When, when you see them happening on the resurrection machine itself or in this sequence, it looks really awesome. And so all the dead animals, even the ones without brains or organs, spring back to life. And, a liver, uh, 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 have- a, a bison carcass. <laughs> a giant side of beef comes walking out. I mean, pigs. they're epic looking. They look great. The do- I yeah, mean, it's, it's, it's revolting. It's, you know? it's, it's disgusting, revolting, amazing. Yeah. Uh, like, it's totally gratuitous. Like we said, there's nothing about this scene that furthers the plot <laughs> in any fashion. But it is the main set piece of this movie. And the one it gets that- gets Key Luke in the movie. The get, great Key Luke. It introduces Key Luke, who again- even by the end, I'm not sure what his character is actually doing in this movie. Yeah, he. I mean, it would have been awesome if they connected it somehow to maybe Chinese lore, or there's a reason he's there to, to surface this. Aside from you know him being one of the epic, you know, them getting Vincent Price and Darren McGavin, and then Key Luke. Key Luke goes back to the Warner Olin Charlie Chan movies as the number one son, and he's in thousands of things. Yeah. And then you know, people he's voice. He, big voiceover guy in the cartoons in the 60s 70s and 80s he's in um Is everything from star Gremlins, trek to star trek food yeah poor him, him and star trek where he's like the get the crap kicked out of him because he's on he's the the guy he's the warden at the planet with all those crazy guys but, but anyway no apparently it's my understanding i mean you probably know more about key luke than i do but uh he's been on the show before not with just gremlins but isn't he also in uh mad love yeah, he's Peter Peter Laurie's assistant in Mad Love. You're right. Yeah, he's he's the one helping Peter Laurie out in Mad Love. I mean, he he was a, a, a an insanely good working actor, working from the I'd say early 30s all the way until his death. You know, and and um, I don't know when he died. Maybe the late 80s, early 90s. But I um, think, if I recall correctly, he was like a like a graphic designer. Like he dev- he designed movie posters hmm. as like an artist. And then through that, he met people through, you know, in the movie industry, obviously. And then they started to ask him to consult on movies that like were about Chinese culture or took place in China. And so he started as like, just kind of 
consulting on movies. And then I guess through that, maybe got put in some of those movies. And then he was, uh, you know, he's probably one of the most familiar Asian faces in cinema. Certainly one of the earliest recognizable, like straight up, like working Asian actors in cinema. Um, and who had a staying power as well, because yeah. a lot of people would get recycled in and out. And that makes sense, because I know um, being a big Charlie Chan fan, sometimes you'll see on eBay a picture of the original Warner Oland who played Charlie Chan, who uh, Keeluk played the number one son in, in his movies. And then when Warner Oland left, another guy, Sidney Toller, came in, and then he had number two son, another guy replaced um, Keeluk. But there's uh, you could buy an 8x10 of... Key Luke drew of Warner Oland. And I was always like, oh, that's really cool that he just drew a picture of Warner Oland like a headshot, but it, that must be it because you said he was a graphic designer at the time. Maybe that was what he would do. And then that's the reason why that begot him having a character, not a caricature, but an actual beautiful portrait of Warner Oland as Charlie Chan. Uh, but great actor. And, you know, he's a guy who did everything in the industry as well as he, he voiced, I think, Charlie Chan in the, in the, Chan and family, whatever that 70s short-lived Hanna-Barbera show was. And he was always, you know, if you needed a bad guy or a good guy, I think he was like Dr. Zinn as well, maybe in the old Johnny Quest and stuff like that. So always working, always taking a paycheck, doing stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a bit of stunt casting in this and that like they cast <laughs> Key Luke, they cast Darren McGavin. Of course, they cast Vincent Price, like these people who are familiar faces uh i'm not sure like what a movie if these people other than maybe vincent price were like important to a movie going audiences of the late 80s like i don't know like how big darren mcgavin was at that point you know like his cold check years were 10 years behind him at that point. Yeah. He was in the natural around this time. Yeah. He was like, in the that's Christmas pro- story, but that wasn't as big as it was at the time. Yeah. I mean, Christmas story kind of grew in popularity. Over- he was in, uh, 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 raw deal. <laughs> no, I mean, you know? obviously he was, so he was stuff, working, but I feel like it seems to me there's a bit of like, let's get Kolchak. Let's get Vincent price. Let's get key Luke. Yeah. And it seems like it's probably more for the benefit of like Mark Goldblatt than yeah, the for like marketing purposes. Yeah. I think Vincent Price you can have in there as like the horror guy. Oh, we and with Vincent Price, but you're right. I think Key Luke, certainly Key Luke and to a certain extent Darren McGavin, people are like, Oh, I know who that is. Oh, look, it's Darren McGavin. But yeah. People aren't certainly automatically a familiar like Kolchak, you know. Yeah. Um and also there's you know there's also a, a notice, a very short cameo by uh, uh, a legendary stuntman uh, and martial artist named Gene LaBelle. Yeah. Who popped up, you know. Big, big, that's the whole people know um, the controversy for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with the Brad Pitt character and Bruce Lee. Gene LaBelle is the guy who that all started with. And I talked to. Um, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his name and he's a friend of mine. Uh, the the uh, man from um, who played Mike Myers in part four, um, who was in Grizzly Adams. 
oh crap and he he was telling me the story he's like yeah that's all true with Gene LaBelle and Bruce Lee where Bruce Lee was a kind of a dick on set of Green Hornet and stuff and then Gene LaBelle they brought him in as a ringer and Gene LaBelle threw him into something and then unlike the Bruce Lee in how it's done in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood they became friends and then Gene LaBelle taught Bruce Lee specifically I think judo and stuff and helped him hone his uh, Gene Kwon Do technique Gene Kwon Do yeah, he was uh Gene LeBau was uh, a martial artist, a pro wrestler. He was uh uh I think I think you're right, judo. I mean his thing was like grappling. And yeah. in the at the time of uh Green Hornet, he he worked on Green Hornet and like Dion said, he, he and Bruce Lee actually became very good friends and because and Bruce Lee was at that point, I'm guessing was in the process of creating Jeet Kune Do and which was like an adaptive martial arts style that didn't have, you know, very set moves like other martial arts did. The whole point was like, you know, be, be like water, you know, like water can flow, it can drip, it can fit into a jug, it can fit into a cup, like be adaptive. And so uh, Bruce Lee was very interested in the aspect of grappling that, uh, Jean LaBelle was uh, kind of known for. He shows up in scenes in all kinds of movies in the late eighties and early nineties. He's like a, by that point, he's a pretty, he's an older gentleman with red hair. Uh, you could see him in Rapid Fire with Brandon Lee for all kinds of stuff. Who is he in this movie? He was when they at the end of the movie when they kind of. Um, storm into the facility again dante uh pharmaceuticals or whatever uh they she williams bust through a door and there's like a, a security a night security guard oh that stands up that's like stands up to go shoot then he gets shot he falls on that's Gene oh wow and don shanks is the guy who i couldn't remember his name don shanks who played um the native american on grizzly adams and had a huge stunt career for stuff for years and Deserve, deserves his own side cast for us to talk about him, but he played Michael Myers in, I think it was four. What's the one where he's driving the Corvette or the car? That's four or five? Maybe five Not with the little girl. Where they fall, he falls down to the well at the end. That's four. Okay, yeah, he's in four. He plays Mike Myers in four, but he was friends with Gene LaBelle and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, Gene LaBelle's a legend. Yeah, Gene LaBelle, he taught grappling to Chuck Norris, to Roddy Piper, to yeah. hundreds of people. Um, and he has a very, uh, there's a very interesting story, not just the Bruce Lee story, where there's an interesting story revolving around Gene LaBelle uh, on the set of Out for Justice. He was the stunt coordinator on that. Oh, yes. <laughs> and yes. apparently, as the story goes, it's legend. Is it Out for Justice or is it Under Siege? According to my research, it was out for justice, but okay. the internet is not always truthful. And so this, take this story with a grain of salt, but apparently uh, a Gene LaBelle overhears Steven Seagal telling somebody that because of his Aikido training, he cannot be choked out. He cannot be choked unconscious. Uh, not something you want to tell Gene LaBelle. And so Gene LaBelle says like, well, if that's true, do you want to? Do you want to show us? <laughs> and Very so, reminiscent of, Holly, of Once Upon a Time <laughs> in Hollywood. Uh, let's prove it. So Gene LeBell gets him in the sleeper hold or whatever. He gets him in the hold, you know, 
cuts off the carotid artery in the neck or whatever, and and apparently Steven Seagal goes out like a light. And it sur- sur- and was incontinent. And as- shit himself. <laughs> yes, yes, as people say, <laughs> supposedly. This is all urban legend. We all don't know. Like Steve, uh, Steven Seagal has, has denied this. Yeah. And uh, Steven Seagal's like driver or 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 security guard or, or bodyguard at the time has said that uh, his depiction of the story is very different than this one. Yeah, but uh, 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 that that's one of the stories. That's what that's a Jean LaBelle story. Anyway, so Jean LaBelle pops up in one shot of this movie, and uh, enough for, uh, long enough for me to go like, hey, that's Jean LaBelle. Jean LaBelle. <laughs> that's like with me. I thought you were going to say Martha Quinn. The Famous VJ from MTV. She has a cameo at the beginning as a news reporter, and I thought you were going to say it was her. No. You know, There's also a up. very quick cameo by Shane Black, the yep. brother of Terry Black as a, as a patrolman. Chips, and uh, yeah. there's also a, a very quick, it's actually related to something that you were talking about earlier. There's a little cameo um, towards the end of the movie uh, as a henchman. Uh, I don't think it's Tom Noonan, but it's, Tom Noonan's character, the Ripper, in, in, in the last action hero that would come out several years later, written by Shane Black. There's like a henchman that looks just like Tom Noonan's character. I mean, at the end, when they, when when Darren McAvin, his two henchmen there, the two yeah, zombies, they throw him into the they, they uh, in the ambulance. They put him in the ambulance. Yeah, one of the best sequences of the movie. When I was little, I used to always think those two zombies looked really cool. And again, like how awesome! I think Darren McAvin has a great. I mean. It's funny a lot of this because these are low budget movies. Um, you know, you could tell a lot of these guys they had them for a certain amount of days. You know, we can get into Vincent Price's story about this, but it's like you could tell they had maybe Darren McAvin for a couple of days because he just walks into the scene and then he leaves the scene. Yeah. You know, but every time he's in it, I mean, not so much in the first or second scene, but near the end of the movie, I think he's just doing such a good job with what he has. And that's another story that Goldblatt says, like, you know, uh, adamant professionals never mocking or talking down the script um and darren mcgavin would come on and in between scenes he'd want to go through he'd sit there he'd read the script he'd give ideas he'd want to run through with the actors the scene so they can practice it so darren mcgavin was very involved and um there are some like there's some moments that i just love you know like where that getting to the scene where at the end of the movie when you realize um that Darren McGavin's character is connected to all this, and he's one of the, the, the people who were involved when he has two zombies and they grab Treat Williams and Treat's like talking back, and, and Darren McGavin goes like that to them to like make him hold him a little harder. He goes like, I, I, I. It's like it's just so good, it's so funny, and it then goes into I think one of the best sequences of the movie, certainly for me as a child, the whole ambulance sequence. Yeah, which... you know I think it's such a great, great <laughs> sequence. It's so seed. It's so good. They chain uh, Darren. They chain not not Darren again. They treat they chain they handcuff Treat Williams in the back of this ambulance that's been souped up. Yeah, modified. To they, they, I don't know why they feel a need to explain that, <laughs> but <laughs> it's made by stainless steel. It's soundproof, but it, so you uh, can't. Yeah, you can scream all you want. No one's going to hear you. In the idea of that, you know, he's only got a certain amount of hours to live. If they handcuff him in this ambulance, he's going to just live out the last couple hours and ta- fall into the bucket of mush yeah uh there but um treat unwittingly um outwits them in a great sequence and i always thought it looked very painful with him having to you know he's handcuffed to a um gurney uh and he's trying to he uses his leg to take the 
ambulance since it's, it's parked on a hill. He takes it out of park and puts it into neutral. We're going for a little ride. And it always looks so painful, like you could see his wrist coming apart. Yeah. You know, to, 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 to move far enough away to be able to get the, um, the, the ambulance into neutral. Um, and then it rolls down the hill. And causes this big, yeah, and causes big the death of many. Yeah, and it's <laughs> all, all par and parcel in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's like 20 cops die in the beginning of this movie. There's a, I'd say probably at least seven or eight people probably just like in car accidents and stuff probably die either, in this sequence. Either die or get horribly and are paralyzed. Uh, <laughs> you know, cars blow up in in this sequence. Yeah, um, through, through but, this stunt, but. Um, gets uh does the trick yeah gets them away so um so we get they go to uh, going back they go to dante pharmaceuticals to investigate what's going on and uh very funny that the that the that the clerk there is looking at a playboy or a penthouse well, yeah. we're way back at the beginning of the movie yeah, we're, right the, we're going back to the beginning <laughs> and uh i i always found that odd that he doesn't even care that they're there uh, i don't want to spend too much time on this but it's just and then we get to like them getting a tour from the place uh and uh that's when they find what's behind this door and the woman's like oh don't worry about that joe piscopo goes to the bathroom supposedly and he goes into the door finds this really scary zombie biker looking dude with this crazy face that he fights and that leads to the scene where um treat williams goes to try to aid his partner and he's thrown into this room that they usually use to euthanize the animals um uh, and that's how Treat Williams is killed. And I find that, that it's a very good way. Treat Williams is fortunate the way he dies in this way because he doesn't get any bullet holes, gunshots, or whatever. So when he wakes up, he looks pr- practically fine. He says he feels fine. He looks fine. It's a very good way to have him meet his demise for this sake because when they bring him back on the resurrection machine, he looks perfectly normal. But then, like we said, he starts to have this decline where he's starting to you know, rot at a very... Um, uh, exponential factor or it's going quickly in the 12 hours so um i always find that very fortunate that the way he died it's very it's a very traumatic scene it's even messed up because they have a dog in a cage and the dog looks at treat so it's almost like you know it's a reverse role of you know of 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 the animal getting usually euthanized the humans getting euthanized and uh it's a very powerful next scene with joe piscopo it's just like almost dramatic scene and i almost you know to, to 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 throw some um, throw some props, I guess, at Joe Piscopo. Like his character is very jokey, as we said, up until this point, and he's able to be very serious here. Like, oh, his best friend and partner died, so it's a very the most dramatic scene he has in the movie, you know. Until they realize they can try to resurrect uh, Troop Williams, they bring him back. Um, it gets it's very user friendly. This machine, so they're able in a second <laughs> figure out how to use it. They bring him back. Uh, it's a very cool scene, and then you know, as the story goes, we have to find out who killed me now that's is another thing i wanted to post to you while they're fighting with the crazy biker looking zombie dude and treat gets thrown into the to the thing you see of course the dario argento kind of gloved hand come into frame and turn the device on to lock treat in the room and take the the uh air out to kill him who in the movie who do you think that is that's supposed to be darren mcgavin's character Spoiler I, alert. I don't know, man. I, is it Key Luke? That's another. Vincent Price? Like loose end of this movie. Like another, like just. Like who's actually doing the killing? Who's trying to stop them? I mean, I guess if we're looking at the script analysis, I guess it could be Darren McAvin because Darren McAvin's there. 
It could be Key Luke because Key Luke is, or it could be Vincent Price. Yeah, it could be any of them. I mean, I guess if I had to, if you were like a betting man, you need to pick one. Who do you think it was? I'd say it was Darren McGavin. But it's another thing that never gets explained. Who's the one who actually kills him? Yeah, like it. It there's a lot of about this movie that I think you just you have to roll with it. You just <laughs> have to yeah. like. You just have to accept it and you have to move on. You can't get hung up on certain details. Like the fact that, you know, at the end, spoiler alert, (laughs) they end up killing Darren McGavin by like firing up the machine when he's still, when he's, when he's already been resurrected, but yet, you know, like Key Luke's machine doesn't kill, doesn't blow everybody up who's still alive, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you just have to, and like we said, the fact that, that Key, that, that scene where all the, the dead, the butchered animals come alive that has no purpose in this movie whatsoever, other than the spectacle of it, which is fine, especially for that era, not yeah. unheard of. Um. Yeah, there's just a lot of like loose ends and and convenient. There's a lot of convenience in the storytelling. <laughs> in the director's commentary, they also bring that up while they're talking about the scene at the Chinese butcher. They're like, what would happen? And I think they haven't thought about it until 15 years later when they're doing a director's commentary. They're like, well, what effect does the resurrection device that Keyluke has on Treat Williams? Because he's already dead. And they're like, oh, I don't know. That's a good point. We never thought of, would it revitalize him? Or would, like you're saying, would it blow him up like it blows up Darren McGavin near the end? Um, and, you know, and like there's a perfect, another example is like, for some reason they split up mid-movie. Like Treat Williams goes with... Uh, Lindsay Frost, is that her name? I don't know if it's... A, I don't remember which which female actress is who. I, I apologize. The blonde... Who is introduced at at Dante at the Dante uh, Corporation or whatever? Yeah. They go to the they go to see Vincent Price's grave, who's supposedly it's mausoleum. Supposedly her father earlier in the movie, but then we find out that that's not true. And Joe Piscopo is supposed to go do something else, but I don't think he ever goes and does whatever he's supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, we don't find that out. It's very like they. It's like almost like a deleted scene they never shot or they never thought of because then later the next scene we find out in a very gruesome way Joe Piscopo is killed. Yeah, in a great you know it's a great way of killing him, but it's sad. It's like oh Joe Piscopo's dead. That's a shame. But they go so they I think they they're going to the spoiler alert the cemetery to see if Vincent Price's body's still there. Like is that yeah. so they go I there think. and they open the door to the mausoleum and then they go to like I guess the door of the the crypt like yeah. wherever the body's supposed to be and they pull on it and it's locked like okay he's in there <laughs> that's it <laughs> like okay but there's like a telephone <laughs> and uh, there's like a little like a little desk in the in the a mausoleum. little lamp that the light works and I mean that's not unheard of and they um, turn on the, the lamp yeah. Turn on the light, which is like okay, I guess for people that want to visit, and it's probably dark in there. All right, there's a there's a lamp in there if you want to visit. You want. To I was going to say that because I've had in the I live near Woodlawn Cemetery, which is at the top of the Bronx, where a lot of famous people are buried, and they do mausoleum tours nowadays, which is actually pretty cool because at night they light them up really nice with these lights and stuff, so you can go through. And usually these mausoleums are always locked, 
But for this tour, they unlock them, and you're able to go in and specifically not go to look at the body. You're going to like look at the architecture, or like look at these extravagant, like you know, um, Strauss or the J.C. Penney's heir or whoever had made these things. Like it's the same Italian brothers who did the um, dome that in Grand Central, where you're able to like uh, speak. And it's perfect, perfect acoustics where if you stand on one side of it, on the other side, you can talk and the people can hear you. Those people did the, the same dome in this mausoleum. My point is, when you go in, there are outlets. There are sometimes power, lights, you know. So I don't know if that's for the family. You know, if you want to go in and, I don't know, charge your phone or whatever. Like, I don't know what, you know. But there, there are, it's not unheard of that you would have these weird, you know, a lamp or a light or something in these mausoleums. So, but. but on the inside of the lampshade, lampshade yeah. is a number written in blood. Yes. <laughs> it says, stay tuned next week. <laughs> that uh, Treat Williams writes down and later deciphers that the incredibly difficult uh, code to crack was the the numbers on a phone and the letters that correlate with the numbers on, a, on, a, on an old-fashioned phone. So... And it points to Darren McGavin. That's how we found out that Darren McGavin's involved. I don't. Did I miss it, or did I just forget it? Like, who, do we know? Is it because like he's yeah. in, he's in cahoots with Vincent Price? Like, so think- this is the weird. So this is <laughs> this leads to a question I was going to ask later on. It's a very philosophic question. It's involved. Maybe we're over analyzing the script too much, but this leads to the discussion of so. We learn Vincent Price at the end of the movie is in cahoots with uh, Dante Pharmaceuticals. He's almost the guy helming this thing where supposedly we're led to believe, I guess he died. They brought him back. And that is the the MacGuffin for this whole um, uh, experiment or program where he's giving the pitch to rich people saying, you know, uh, and it's a good monologue that Vincent Price has at the end, where he's like, you know, what's the point of having all this money if you can't take it with you when you die? We can offer you eternal life. If you give us half your fortune, we will resurrect you and you can live your life in obscurity. And maybe we'll put a fake body in your grave and people will think you're dead and you can live on forever. So my question is two part. One, maybe it's three part. One, like you're saying, did Vincent Price get resurrected? And did they just put somebody in his place in his grave who they then resurrected and then had to live out the 10 or 12 hours that supposedly the time clock that pertains to Treat Williams? And then that's the guy who you said is the one who wrote in blood to, to decipher that Darren McGavin is involved. That's question one. Two, are does the resurrection machine have a different setting where... It's not just a 10 or 12 hour window where if you put it on full charge, are you able to be resurrected and then you just need a boost every once in a while? Because that would mean maybe if Vincent Price's character was a resurrected, that's the reason why he's able to last longer than whatever. And then three, and I'm going to need paragraphs here, Blake, of essay questions. Three, is it just a big hoax where uh, they're uh what's the word they're they're it's a confidence scheme they're conning all these people and they're just taking it to steal their money they're going to be resurrected but they're going to be stuck in their grave for 12 hours until they die and then they're not actually going to be being resurrected as promised that make sense i think so 
So I, what do you think about all those I questions? I don't have answers to any of these questions, but I will try to, uh, to, to we can talk it out. <laughs> yeah, so the first one, like you said, is is it Vincent Price, was he resurrected? And then they, they threw another guy in this, some schmuck in there, right? Yeah, oh, that's, I, that's, I don't know. Here's okay. the, that's like the, the here's the thing that screws like this whole discussion up is I don't know if it's ever clear that Vincent Price is resurrected. Oh, he could just be he could have feigned his own illness of dying. He may have faked his death to just I don't for what reason I don't know. And but, people, I want to say that. Only on Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers are you going to get these tough questions. <laughs> we and these we answer the tough questions. <laughs> the tough, tough questions. We're not talking about freaking algorithms or quantitative ease or any kind of, you know, well, esoteric questions. We're talking about I, <laughs> I guess one can assume that he's been resurrected, but we're never actually told that. Um. I think whoever wrote, there's no, there's no indication that there's anybody at the mausoleum. Like I said, they walk up and they're just like, okay, the door's locked. He must be in there. Like we don't, they don't open the door. They don't see that there's well, a body. Well, there's a deleted there. scene where this goes on longer on the, on the, there's a deleted scene where they shot. This goes on longer. This sequence, they open the door and there's a rotted zombie on the other side that falls when they open the door. She screams and she thinks that's Vincent Price. And she's like, Oh my God. And then that scene ends with Dick Miller, the great Dick Miller from Joe Dante's films, Terminator and all this kind of stuff in Roger Corman movies. He shows up as a night watchman at the cemetery and kind of kicks them out. And sadly, you know, his part was cut and left on the cutting room floor. So Dick Miller did have a cameo and probably was paid to be in this movie. So they do kind of, there is somebody in the mausoleum. But in the context of the movie that we're presented. The cut, yeah. We don't know. No. And so we, it's never answered. It's never discussed. Who writes the number on the inside of the thing and it looks pretty fresh let's be honest yeah the, the blood <laughs> on the inside i like that somebody they had to probably had to take the <laughs> lampshade off. off so that they could get their hand in there and write very neatly these numbers and some fresh and some fresh blood and it's a very it's a big uh a big jump that this person's taking that someone's going to come in and look inside the lampshade <laughs> Not just yeah. leave a letter on the desk. Like I said, it's there's a lot of convenient storytelling in this. It's a very Scooby Doo ish kind of thing. Um, so we'll never know the answer to that question. We'll never. We'll we never know who wrote that. We're letter. letting our audience down on why they wrote it, who wrote it, who they expected to find it. <laughs> It'll never be answered. They thought Mike Wallace of sixty minutes was going to come and do a big tell all here. I like I said. I think we can are left to assume that vincent price was resurrected but i don't know okay um question two so <laughs> what's question two <laughs> question two is what was question two question two is um are the people really being resurrected or is that question three I that might be remember. question three i think okay well i'm trying to cover well, I think there's experimentation happening to see if they can prolong 
the or or not pro prolong the the not <laughs> to stunt the not the prolong but the opposite of prolong the the, the uh, decay the decaying process because I mean she decays in one of in in person my personal opinion the best effect sequence of the movie is when uh, the blonde woman who. I can't remember who her name, her character's name, or the actress's name. My apologies. Uh, when she decays, I think that sequence is gorgeous in terms of her name is Randy James in the movie, and her name is Lindsay Frost. And who's uh, the other? Who's the woman that plays the uh, the assistant? Uh, her name is Claire Kirk. Kirk Connell and Dr. Rebecca Smithers is the Emmy. That's right. Who she leaves. I think she had a bigger part that got cut out, but she, we lose her for half the, for the whole second act. And then I remember it being such a sad thing for me too, is when they throw him in the ambulance in the beginning of act three, I would say. Yeah. That they've killed her too. And he has to share the ambulance with her. And that was, because that was, Treat Williams's ex girlfriend in, yeah. in the movie. In the movie, so it's like, oh my god, they killed her too, you know. Yeah. So yeah, so the thing with Lindsay Frost, the Lindsay, the R- Randy James character, who's supposedly Vincent Price's daughter, who works for for um, Dante Pharmaceuticals, she, if she's supposedly dead and comes back, spoiler alert, she was under the impression as well that it was going to be indefinite, but. She must be working on a really fine clock because we see her. She makes her appearance right before their Treat Williams is killed, and her clock goes pretty quick. I mean, she just decays, right? You know. Yeah. Well, I think that's what I'm kind of getting at. I I feel like, and I think it's discussed even that there is experimentation happening to try to pro, to try to 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 stop the decaying process to to have them live. Uh, to be immortal. Um, and I think that she's one of the, like, maybe like the guinea pigs for that. Okay. And I think she's probably lived longer than that 10 to that 12 hour period. And, and we learned she's not Vincent Price's daughter in the story. We learned that she meant Vincent Price when they were both in the hospital. And she died and she, in the hospital. Yeah. And then they bring her back. And as you're saying, I guess it didn't happen yesterday. Yeah. And, uh, but maybe that explains why she looks great until that's her what I mean. Like, demise. It's like, it's like dark man. <laughs> yeah. She just, <laughs> whatever the that clock whatever ends, her she clock just falls apart. was when yeah. it hits, when the, when that, when it chimes, yeah. she's going to just like fall or maybe because she's been with them the whole time, she hasn't had like, she didn't get her injection or whatever. Okay. Maybe she was, maybe, maybe that's what the, Maybe that's what the other stuff is. The the, the MacGuffin pharmaceutical that's the preserving serums. the bodies. Oh, is is keeping them. It's like giving them a little like shot of uh, maybe pep. maybe they're using that to have to to stave off the uh, intravenous the decay because that's yeah. what they're using it to preserve the body. They maybe that's the maybe we think they're using it to preserve the body until they can use the machine. It's but the at home. It's the out of patient treatment. But it's <laughs> actually the drug that's keeping them from decaying after they've been resurrected. 
Okay. I think we might be onto something. <laughs> okay. I think you're right. <laughs> I think I think we might be cracking this. Because this, this. that's what Vincent Price at the end. He's like, no, save the machine. You know, his whole spiel is you can live forever. I'll give you whatever you want, money, whatever. So I feel like he does believe that this isn't going to be just a... And that, I guess, leads to question three. Are they conning all these rich people? Or are they going to just have these rich people? They're just doing it to take their money. And then these people are going to be resurrected for 14 hours in their grave. And they're not going to dig them up. Maybe it's because I just trust Vincent Price. I didn't believe yeah. that it was a con. But there's yeah. no reason not to believe that either now that you bring it up. Yeah. Um, like I said, because even when we watched it this time and I was like, I, I did feel like I don't even know if he's been resurrected, you yeah. know? Um, so I, so I don't know. I, I, I would like to believe that, uh, even though this is nefarious, uh, the, the whole thing is nefarious that Vincent Price isn't just conning these wealthy people out of half their fortunes, uh, and then just, resurrecting them and let them d decay inside them, their own mausoleum. <laughs> Which is really messed up. <laughs> Which is very messed up. Um, I think that they're they're working on and they feel like they're succeeding at the immortality thing without decay. And I'm going to say... Final answer. De definitively that it's the drug that's keeping them from decaying as they're, like after that. they're resurrected. No, like that. And that's why they're buying it in such huge quantities. And why they need the supply, yeah. Because they need like an uh, they need an endless supply of it. It's a, it's like a dialysis machine. You gotta hook up to it and have your regular injections to keep you prim and proper. Yeah. Um, it's like the uh the drink of from the holy grail at the end of the last Harkening back to our last podcast. <laughs> Yeah, you need because to, it's you need to drink from that baby every day because it's hard because then you think about if they're bringing back all these criminals to rob jewelry stores, rob banks to be as henchmen, you only have them for like a 10 or 12 hour window before they start, you know, because we have a zombie hit squad that comes later that try to kill Treat Williams and at um, um, Lindsay Frost's house. And I always thought they were freaky. The guy that looks like a cross between Richard Lynch and David Patrick Kelly, the little guy, and yeah. then the, the black guy who's very scary. I thought he, you know, and they said, the director, um, Goldblatt, said they were auditioning a lot of mimes to be the zombies, to have it have a, have a particular look. And um, I think that comes across in some of the stuff. It's never really explained why that biker, the heavy set biker dude at the beginning that Joe Piscopo tussles with, like why his face is yeah. faces or whatever. It's like why did he die that way, or is it some sort of thing to do with the machine, or it's just a reason to have a, a really messed up mask, which I think it was, but it's never explained why his face look because it doesn't really necessarily make you look like a mutant. Yeah. So uh, there's also a question of like, yeah, you're bringing these henchmen back, like at the beginning, the two jewelry store guys. One of those dudes is Arnold Schwarzenegger's stunt double. And that's how Mark Goldblatt knew him because he'd work with him maybe in Terminator and Commando. So they get him to be one of the jewelry store robbers. And I always thought those masks they were wearing was really freaky. Like those, like, uh, those kind of like, um, S and M leather. Yeah. S and M like, like leather masks. Like I thought they, they're really unique looking. You don't see in movies. So I thought that was freaky and stuff. Um, so there's a lot of questions there about like, how long does it last? And, and are they just having to recycle a lot of people who are dying as quick as they can? You know, um, 
That's that's a, a very big tall order for Darren McGavin to have to fill every two day every day and a half or less than a half a day, giving them bodies to bring well, back to the body. I mean, the bodies of the jewelry thieves they had the drug in them, so I mean, it could be that they were using the drug to preserve them before resurrecting, or it could be like they were part of the experiment and they just you know because they didn't really look too zombie-ish. No. They just look like they were drug addicts. Or yeah. Whatever. So I mean, they could have. But as we go on in the movie, those other guys, like the the, the zombie hit squad that comes, and then later the well, Darren McGavin's goons, they look they're looking like rapid decay. I think. Well, this again speculation. We're reading way more <laughs> way, to this way movie this. than than we're than what we're being given. And I venture to say, has ever been. <laughs> I think the jewelry thieves, the jewelry heist stuff, I think Darren McGavin's got his own thing going on the side. Okay. That doesn't have to do with Vincent Price. Oh, that's the reason why when Treat Williams confronts him about he's in on it, he looks at his ring. He's like, you got that. So he's getting stuff from, he doesn't even, he's like wearing the stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's got it. He's or cashing it in for, get his nice yeah, car. He's going to the, yeah, he's going like, to I think the, he, uh, I think Darren McGavin is using the device or whatever and kind of skimming off the top, got his own side game okay. going um, that Vincent Price either doesn't care about. Or, That's his side hustle. <laughs> or, yeah, he's got a side hustle going with, and maybe because the drug is in limited quantities, like to him, it's just like, I just need somebody for 12 hours to go <laughs> rob a bank. Like, you know, or like, I you just, would think in, in the, in the, in the, in the, um, <laughs> And the thought process of the bad guys that you wouldn't want all this undue um, attention paid to these people who are just being so brazen because it's going to, it unlocks all these questions, which gets us the movie. You know, you think they would be a little more easy, but maybe they're doing it as a trial as well. Having these guys rob the bank and setting it up so they will have these clashes with the police to see how far they can get because bullets can't stop them certainly but then you can drown them or electrocute them that stops them you can beat them with a a, a fire extinguisher or a hammer that stops them so there is a way to kill these to, people you have ultimately. to like overkill them yeah hit them in the head bring beat them or burn them <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't know about johnny because treat williams is under the is underwater for like five minutes in the, that one scene and that's pool. true yeah and they said and goldblatt says that's a direct reference he, you said he edited rambo too it's John Rambo being underwater, waiting for one of the, the the Vietnamese guy comes. That's where that they get that homage from of Treat jumping out of the jacuzzi. That's from Rambo too. Um, and yeah, you don't you don't you don't you don't know. I think that uh, you know, like they bring back Darren McGavin's bringing back these people from the morgue. Yeah, and uh, and you know they're not the you know, uh, they're not rocket scientists. So, you know, they're, they're working for damn again. Maybe they don't realize that their, their resurrection is limited. They think they're, and uh, they think they're impenetrable. They're, they're invulnerable. And so they're getting shot up. Not thinking that there's a way yeah. to kill them. And then we discover that like, if a body has been, dead for too long they come back and they're kind of like mindless zombies that's what i was going to say too because that always made me real that's what i always thought when they eventually spoiler alert bring joe piscopo back maybe he's been dead so long 
that, you know, that's how he's, they're very susceptible to suggestion where yeah. Treat Williams is brought back so quickly. He still kind of remembers stuff. Yeah. I but think the longer you've been that's dead. That's the implication is that like, that's how he's getting kind of like his silent henchman. Yeah. Is by using the deceased that have been dead so long that their brain function has been, you know, uh, handicapped. Yeah. Uh, I do think it only in 1988 could you have Joe Piscopo's character gets resurrected, mindless zombie, and the one thing that can snap him out of his mindless zombiness is a gay joke from previously in the movie. And he's like, oh, yeah. Nothing out, nothing more meaningful from the years they've been partners and friends. No, like, remember the time, you know. We were shit-faced at the bar. And yeah. You or, my- or, like, you that your sister, you know, like, nothing that he it knows. It really brings out your eyes. <laughs> Maybe because it was recent. Maybe, you know, he thinks, maybe it was a recent memory. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's the one he goes to. But uh, yeah. The and one, he looks great for you know how he looked being drowned. Yeah. Not, not uh, pruned you know, face or It'd be waterlogged. cool if they made him look like, like Ted Danson circa like Creepshow. Yeah. You know, yeah, have him look like that. <laughs> but <laughs> I guess maybe Joe didn't want to yeah, have that look. Joe's like, I don't want to go under the... Yeah. The, uh, the, the makeup, the makeup, because they they said Piscopo was in his bodybuilding phase, so that was what it was his idea a lot of times to, you know, to accentuate his muscles, have that shirt on, and like it was great for you know costumes because he just wore that gray shirt for the entire movie, but that's the reason why he looks the way he does, you know, in that ripped fashion. But it does kind of lead you leave you with a lot of questions about stuff about um you know all these questions we're trying to answer yes. for our listeners. <laughs> I think it's, uh, I think it getting the last leg of this thing. I think let's talk about Vincent Price and um, let's wrap it up. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, the one thing about Vincent Price, you, I think you'll probably have more to say about it than I do, but I do think that, uh, you know, and, and it's probably part of probably a story that you're going to tell. I do think it's like 90% of Vincent Price's performance looks like uh pickup shots <laughs> oh yeah it looks like, <laughs> like just, nobody yeah. else on set except for him and mark goldblatt and the cameraman yeah they, they said that they had three days to film with him and um they actually went over and he was nice enough to be like yeah well, that's fine i'll come back on my own time you don't have to pay me and he came back and you know picked up whatever he needed to whatever they needed to film uh you know just a testament of how awesome he is and they also talk about that he there was a um uh, the the soundstage they built that on. He was telling everybody while he was hanging out that he had worked on an RKO picture called His Kind of Woman. He had shot 50 years before on that soundstage, and he was regaling them with all these stories. But it's great to hear all these guys like Key Luke or Darren McGavin or Vincent Price were like such great like uh, people to work with and had nothing but good things to say. Like um, uh, Black um, says on it that like Vincent Price said to him like great script and he was like thank you you know it's like he really enjoyed it like that so yeah Price came in you know had a couple days you know he shows up at the end of the movie paycheck comes in comes out wearing his red trainers and um you know he's awesome in it um well, and I th- then I think they're like I think they're just of a different generation and of a different work ethic you know I 
you know, here in Bruce Campbell's book, uh, If Chins Could Kill, uh, Confessions of a B-Movie Actor, he talks about making McHale's Navy and how they were, you know, some of those scenes were shot like sun beating down like 100 degrees and people were complaining, but like Ernest Borgnine would be like, just give me a glass of water and he'd go sit in the shade you know, on the, on the ground, like under a tree, <laughs> you know, never complained, you know, all the younger actors are complaining. They want their, you know, like their trailers or whatever. And or just like, just, I just, I need a glass of water and he'll just go sit down and wait for, for his next take in the, in the heat. You know, I think it's just a different, I don't think people complained. Yeah. And, and I think were, they came from a different era where and they, of, and of course, used to that. Yeah, yeah, of course, there were probably always like divas and, you know, people who uh, had a certain amount of egos. I mean, we talk about it with uh, Towering Inferno, the two, like the egos that were on that movie that were certainly of a, of a, maybe not, you know, a generation of Vincent Price and Key Luke, but, um, you know, but still, I mean, those, those kinds of like, difficulties with working with anybody in any business always existed. But I think for the most part, probably I think it has to do with these guys were older guys came from a studio system. You know, they, they, they did the work. They hit their mind, you know, like Carpenter reason why Carpenter always loved working with Russell. Uh, Kurt Russell was like, cause Kurt Russell, you know, grew up, being taught in the Disney school of acting, which was a very old school way. Like I, he always hits his marks and he knows his line. That's what James Cagney used to always say. The, 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 he's he, James Cagney said the acting is easy. Just, you just got to hit your mark, know your lines and believe what you say. That's it. You know, and then, and then, then the rest is, you know, and this is before, you know, the fifties method acting and all the, you know, the Meisner and all the different methods and stuff like that. So yeah. they come from a different era. The studio guys were working on a movie a week. You know, so it was very much like that muscle memory. Remember your lines, know what you're doing, get into it when you have to. And then, okay, you're on to the next thing. Or if you're doing two different movies, you're doing a play at night. Michael J. Fox doing family ties during the day and shooting Back to the Future at night. You know, these horrific work schedules. Um, but yeah, they're just from a different caliber. But Vince's price, other than like his extended monologue where he's clearly on set with everybody, Every other shot from the beginning of that scene and the end of the scene is like him standing in a doorway. No. By, by yeah, yeah. <laughs> or even the, the, the video they have of him in bed dying. You know, it's all like they just got it really quick. It's um, like everybody else go home. They bring him out on, on a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> just shoot all this stuff and you, you need anything. You need water. You want to make you a little cooler in here. Okay, let's go. Scene. Um, I noticed there's a, there's a, you know, of course, a, uh, a fish, a dead fish motif in this movie that, you know, you keep seeing the fish, dead fish, frozen fish, the Emmy, the medical examiner in her office has like fish frozen in the, yeah. in a glass. And then the Lindsay Frost character has fish in her apartment and she always says they always die. The ones I like always die. So they have this running motif of dead fish in the movie. Um, they said they wanted to have her specifically, um, the Lindsay Frost character, they were trying to reference Mrs. Peel from the Avengers show. So they tried to have her like in outfits to look like that. Um, so those are the kind of, they tried to dress her up to, to, to have a callback to have her look like you know, Mrs. Peel from those um, shows. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, a lot of shoulder pads and mullets. Yeah, it looks great for the era. <laughs> uh, 
Piscopo's <laughs> mullet is in full force there. Beautiful. Definitely Beautiful party mullet. in the back. Some, yeah. Some serious business in the front. Um, the place they shot the pharmaceuticals place that was used in Biodome a couple years later. That's the exterior for Biodome. That great movie. That's a classic. Um, let's see. What else? What else? What do we else do we have here? Well, as we're uh, writing down. Apparently a lot of stuff was cut to make an R rating. Yeah, that's and that's what gets to the MPAA. It's like, you know, they they a lot of the gratuitousness like when um in the butcher shop sequence when he gets stabbed with the with the with the uh cleaver in the hand, there was supposed to be a reaction shot of him looking at his hand split apart or more when Lindsay Frost dies in the um in the bathroom in that great sequence where it was going to go on a little longer, but they just cut it cuz I I guess New World they had caveats. They wanted Joe Piscopo in the picture <laughs> and they Wanted it to be this concept, but they didn't want it to be overtly bloody, which is kind of like, well, you know, you're you're in the terror. It's like you want to be in the pool, but you don't want to be too wet. Yeah. Well, you know, well, that's part of what I was getting at, at the beginning, yeah. four hours ago at the beginning of this thing, which is like mainstream Hollywood goes, tries to do something that's more of a <laughs> genre of film, and you start getting these weird, like, uh, caveats and uh, compromises and i mean yeah like it's a small budget but it's a small budget for hollywood like in, in some ways like i i, I feel like the, a better a better movie maybe not a more not maybe not a more fun movie but a better movie probably would have been made kind of more independently on a smaller budget maybe not on the streets of la but you know, somewhere else passive for like, I feel like a grittier, more serious version of this would have been kind of a lower budget attack on it. But because the, even though it was low budget for Hollywood, it was still a, a fair amount of money. And I think yeah, we benefit from that with the, with the effects scenes. Yeah. But I think maybe like that studio interference and stuff is where we, we kind of, you know, we don't benefit <laughs> from that kind of thing. They were saying um, deleted scenes. There was going to be a longer library sequence where they were originally going to have a zombie pop out of the library and they were going to have this big fight in, with the zombie at the library, which I don't think they ended up shooting. But what they did end up shooting and was on left on the cutting room floor is there's a realization where treats they're supposed to be in the library and she's supposed to sit back and look around and say, look at all these books, you know, and, and he says this real prophetic line like, you know, there's books here, blah, 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 romance, whatever. I'm never going to have time to read all this, you know, because now he knows his mortality. Yeah. And um, that was what they were trying to accomplish with the scene where she dies in the bathroom, Lindsay Frost, and she falls apart. That's when he faces his own mortality. He realizes this is eventually going to happen to him in this way. And that's why near the back half of the movie, he looks so cool where he's, you know, he's all like rotting, I think. And when he comes out of the ambulance, like for me, that's like the best sequence of the movie. Where he comes out of the body bag and he confronts Shane Black, the patrolman who's there like, oh my God. And he takes his badge out and he's like, I'm a cop. And he's like, you're a cop. He's like, yep. I'm like surprise. And he takes his gun. I need your gun. I need your bike. And he, he speeds away. Like, I think that's such a cool little sequence. Like that makes the whole movie there. You know, him being, you know, that whole. And then I guess... I couldn't tell maybe with the 4K or where you originally saw it, but the DVD version, I couldn't really tell, but there's supposed to be shards of metal in Treat Williams' face. And there's like one in his ear to make it, he, they wanted to make him look a little punk rocky yeah, yeah. in the makeup at that point. So that's why his hair is a certain, almost looks like a mohawk and he's supposed to like a piece of metal, it's supposed to be like an earring, you know, almost hanging out, you know, so, but it's, some of that was lost on me 
because of the transfer or whatever of time and stuff like that. So, <laughs> uh, apparently, allegedly, I guess maybe this is a new line picture. Apparently, they ordered a sequel. Yeah, they were. They started writing. Evidently, they wrote a spec script for a sequel, and they were saying that they wanted to have a scene where, since everybody in in this movie ends up dying uh, at the end, the sequel was going to start off with the um, uh, Smithers, the 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 female character who dies, the ME, the medical examiner. She's autopsying herself, where you have her autopsying in real time. Treat Williams at that part in the movie. They were going to have her autopsying herself, and it. It got, they talked of a sequel because when I was watching, I was like, this would have been a great sequel. And then when you listen to the director's commentary, they keep hitting at it. Like we would love to do a sequel, you know, and um, they, I guess, greenlit a sequel to a certain extent, but then what they wrote a, a script for it. And I don't know what was in that script, if it's ever been published or released or what the, the uh, flow or arc would have been in the script or the storyline, but the movie ended up, it was delayed. It didn't, when it came out, it didn't make the money it thought it was going to make. It kind of was a flop. And then that's when they nixed making the sequel, which that, is a shame because I think this would have been a great sequel. Yeah, I read that it was in conjunction with, yeah, it's poor performance. Apparently, it was like brutally reviewed by critics. Yeah. Uh, it didn't do very well financially. And there was a writer's strike. Oh, yeah. And kind, the, yeah, the writer's strike delayed. Yeah, that it delayed work it on it. And then it yeah. just kind of faded into the background. Which is sad because, again, this would have been so cool if you figured out a way to have a sequel. Um, and then the other theme of the death day, you know, like another theme in the movie or motif with, um, you know, you ever think about your death day, Raj? And, you know, if you knew what day you were going to die, you can always, you know, have a party that day. And then they have that dream sequence, which is um, it's a deleted scene where uh treat williams has a dream and he dreams of his death day and everyone's there and he's like hey mom dad how are you and even um terry black shows up as a cameo in it and then out of they have a they wheel out a big cake for him and out of the cake comes like a zombie that looks very reminiscent of one of the evil dead zombies like stop motion kind of and it's a woman who's like a uh, like a corpse that looks like a bare bones who's like dancing in a bikini and then, you know, they wake up and it's a dream sequence. Um, they shot that, but they cut that out. And supposedly they had two different endings for this, too, for the movie. They had a, uh, an ending where uh, the two of them or or Treat and um, Joe walk up to heaven with everybody. And that's supposed to be the scene, them going up to the pearly gates, which we kind of get with them going into the sunset and him making like, I'd love to come back as a, as a bike seat on a, a girl's bike or whatever. Uh and then there's supposed to be a, another ending where uh, Treat wakes up and he's fine and he's with everybody. And he's like, oh, it was a dream or whatever. And he's like, and everything seems okay and everyone's there. But then there's a pullout out of his eye. And as the gradual pullout happens, you see he's in his core, he's in his uh, casket decomposing. And that's like, you know, his, his, uh, I don't, what do you call that? That's his heaven or whatever is him in his head. He's with everybody. He's been reunited with everyone, which doesn't didn't really make it sad. <laughs> yeah, tearing up here. Um. Uh, anyway, but yeah. So you know, I think it's a fun movie. It has some zaniness in it, but I think those are what its strengths are. Yeah. The special effects, certainly the butcher scene with like, where else are you gonna have like a big bison come out of a. Um, uh, a, a, a cold fridge and all that kind of stuff and 
ducks on strings and how they were uh, to uh, accomplish this all this practically and have all this nuttiness and um you know there's a lot of cameos richard picardo who people know from what voyager he's ends up being the doctor on Voyager, you know, a lot of people, or Mel Stewart, who plays the captain in that one scene, the black guy who's yelling at him and stuff like giving him the cliched captain. You guys trashed 40 cop cars, blah, 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 you're on suspension, but I want you on the case anyway, you know. It's like there's, like, all these great little scenes, and I don't know if nowadays, like we said, if the, the beginning of this, but the buddy cop part of this hinders or seems too cliched for modern audiences to understand that back in the day this was a little more of a of a concept or, or a, um, what we were used to. Yeah. So um, I think it's fun. And, and um, you know, I love this movie when it came out. It was really fun. It was cool. You know, it was awesome. It was it was certainly what I would have I liked and, and it gave me what I wanted. And I only wish I'd seen this in the theaters, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's uh, yeah. I think it's I think people are rediscovering it or discovering it for the first time. Like I said, you know, clearly they think that there's an audience for a 4k UHD release of it, or they wouldn't have put it out. They expect that people are going to buy it. So, I mean, it's nice to see, you know, we're obviously this show is largely built around nostalgia and we're not the only people that are nostalgic. So, uh, it's nice to see that uh, a movie like this gets to, to live on. Um, and, uh, that people are that appreciate it and or discovering it for the first time or it was fun revisiting it. Um, it's a movie that I think was probably always on both of our lists on our head in our heads of like, we'll get to this movie at some point. It's uh, it's sad that it took uh, the tragic death of Treat Williams for us to say, yeah, like, let's do it. So, uh, and it was even sadder seeing those scenes where he's dead yeah. in the movie and they're like, I'm dead, Raj. And it's like, oh, um, a lofty score, right? The score by, uh, Ernest Troust, you know, good, good score was really trying to be big and gravitas and bigger than it was. I, I like the score in it's it. It's got a theme song. It's got a theme song. <laughs> um, it reminds me also of a, Bud Light commercial people may remember that Joe Piscopo was in also um, around this era, 88, 89, where it's a black and white Bud Light commercial where he's walking in the countryside and zombies attack him. And it's very much not a living dead. He runs to a farmhouse, barricades himself in, and the zombies are trying to get in. The last second he opens the fridge and there's Bud Light there and they bust in and they look at the Bud Light and he gives them the Bud Light and then they walk away. They're content. And he's like, whoo. And, um, it came and went, and then when I met Joe Piscopo, I said to him, like, I loved you in that Bud Light commercial. It scared the crap out of me when I was little. And he's like, well, they pulled it from the airwaves because it was scaring kids, this Bud Light commercial. So he's like, yeah, it was a fun thing, and it kind of plays into this movie a little yeah, bit, you know. Yeah. But um, it's just funny that something like that that we remember from years ago that I, you know, I haven't thought of in 30 years, and then now, you know, it's it's just like something that brings it back. But, yeah, I had a great time. This was a, It was a fun movie. Um it's great to see all them working again. I loved them even making fun of themselves. Darren McGavin, clearly in the first scene when he shows up, he's got a toupee on a piece. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like it's so evident. But then later in the movie, I had forgotten that that was a joke. <laughs> so he's like, he's almost making fun of himself. And yeah. it, I guess that's almost kind of like a, a a theme in the movie that like, you know, it's like people are, are presenting themselves not as they are. 
So it's just funny that he can lampoon himself where he's like combing the, the piece on the mannequin head. And then, you know, later on he's putting it on. So I thought all that was fun. And yeah. It was, I, a, it was fun. It was a fun revisit. Like I said, there's a lot of problems with the movie, but. Well, we, we really went in depth and I, I dare anyone to find another podcast <laughs> or conversation where they're trying to answer these hard hitting questions or even dare to go down those alleys and answer these, these, the unpack it in the way we did. Is there and a novelization? Good. I don't know. I didn't look. I look. would love to. This is ripe for a novelization. You would need a novelization for this because a lot of these questions could have been explained in a novelization you could have had so much more you could have had all the deleted scenes you could have had all this other stuff in a novelization and it could have answered and it could even kind of went into some of the things they talked about in the sequel uh, maybe you and i should write a fan <laughs> fiction novelization fan of this fiction novelization yeah uh that would have been really fun and it's good to see these actors who come back like dick miller key luke Vincent Price, Darren McAvin, and you can tell they're having fun. They're not there to just take a paycheck and then they're scuffing their nose at, you yeah. know, this stuff. You can tell they're enjoying themselves or having a good time, and it kind of reflects in their performances that they they were taking it for what it was, but they were enjoying themselves at the same time. So, yeah. And with that, uh, please, if you haven't seen it, we just spoiled the hell out of it, but uh, feel free to. I hope people went and watched it before they <laughs> listened to this. Go back and revisit Dead Heat. Yeah. Uh, revisit Treats, other uh, fantastic titles. Um, yeah. Joe, too. Go look at Joe. I'm a big fan. I've always put, I'd love to do Wise Guys on this show. So, uh, the Palm movie that's been really forgotten. If there's other, the Palm movies you think have been forgotten, like Dress to Kill or freaking. Um, that other freaky movie with the with the Indian guy with the glasses. What's the name of that movie with um, where the pornos, you know that movie um uh where it's kind of like Vertigo, not Vertigo. It's kind of like Rear Window where he sees the murder happen. Body double, body, body double. double. You know, like those movies. Like you think, like you know, those movies have been forgotten. Well, Wise Guys has just been forgotten, <laughs> baby. It's uh, forgotten, baby. Forgotten, baby. But yeah, go check this movie out. It's a great '80s comedy horror if you're into that kind of thing and the people who are fans of this movie are still fans of this movie there's a lot of people who won't talk about it but people love this movie and it's well remembered in its little circles and with that uh this wraps up a another a surprise summer edition of saturday night movie sleepovers summer 2023 um if you're interested in uh, more of about Scored to Death, you can follow me on social media at Scored to Death. It's various social medias. Uh, the Scored to Death books are available on Amazon from other retailers or from me directly at scoredtodeath.com. And uh, check out Scored to Death Radio at the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. That's a podcast I do where I play music. And right now I'm playing a lot of I'm, I'm steering away from horror mu horror movie music and i've been doing movie theme songs from the 70s and 80s and had i known that this that this the theme song for this movie existed maybe i would have put it in a current episode but uh, maybe nice. uh, maybe i'll do it next time <laughs> if i revisit this topic and uh, i have also have interviews with composers at score to death podcast and uh, currently in production with uh Score to Death, The Dark Art of Scary Movie Music, a documentary. And, uh, of course, you must also check out Dion's extensive work in the arts and uh, literature. 
Yes, I've got two books, um, Blood in the Streets and Morris P.I. Go check them out. Um, like we always say, if you'd like to support us, go buy our books. They're on Amazon. Uh, you can get them on my books, ebook, uh, paperback, and audiobook. Um, you can check out the acting stuff I've done. Um, you know, go look me up. Um, you can check us out. Follow us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, go check out back episodes of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. We're getting close to our 200th episode, which will be fun. Um, we'll eventually get to soon. So, um, you know, check all that out. Um, we have a lot of people, as we say, who've discovered us recently who go back and look at the entire catalog and go in order. So that's a pretty lofty uh, enterprise to go back and listen to us and listen to all our past episodes. So we'd like to thank everybody for doing that. Um, and before my voice completely uh, craps out, uh, thank everybody uh, for listening. And um, we hope you're having a good 2023. And we'll be back soon for something probably this summer or for our anniversary episode. We've got some stuff in the works. And we wanted to surprise people with something like this because people may not have thought we'd be coming back so quickly so this was a fun off doing something just you know it's not that seismic it's something little fun that off. people I remember like that. yeah a little fun <laughs> off so um yeah just keep on you know uh checking out our stuff and you know you, you can you know talk to us engage and we can chat and uh, become part of the the uh the conversation as they say and um you know keep our eyes out you're uh, keep our eyes out keep your eyes out because you'll find something else very soon coming from us so until next time later <laughs>